The Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to David Dida. David is a former English teacher who now works as an educational consultant. He's the creator of the incredibly popular Learning Spy blog, which was massively influential for me when I was working on my own book, How I Wish I Taught Maths. David is also the author of not one, but two of my all-time favourite education books. Firstly, What If Everything You Knew About Education Was Wrong? And then, What Every Teacher Needs to Know About Psychology, which he co-wrote with former podcast guest Nick Rose. And now David has a brand new book out, and it is a cracker. Making Kids Cleverer, a manifesto for closing the advantage gap. And not only is it a great book, it's also a little on the controversial side. So, in a wide-ranging conversation, David and I covered the following things and plenty more besides. As an English teacher, what was David's view on both numeracy and literacy across the curriculum in schools? And just as a word of warning, if you've got young children listening, you might want to tell them to cover their ears when David shares his views on those matters. Then, to what extent should teachers of other subjects accept responsibility for literacy, especially us poor maths teachers? Was David worried about writing this book, given the controversial subject matter and his recent experience confronting some of the issues surrounding heritability of intelligence on social media? Which components of intelligence are fixed and which can be changed? What's the difference between intelligence and IQ? And what role does the way we are raised by our parents affect our IQ? What is the effect of peer groups on IQ? And what are the implications of that for schools? Just what is powerful knowledge? What approaches to education does David think actually widen the advantage gap? What's the role of deliberate practice in education? What does David think about cognitive load theory? How about struggle and failure, especially when considering the implication of former podcast guests Robert and Elizabeth Bjork's work on desirable difficulties? And David then reflects upon a significant piece of research before recommending a wonderful set of big threes for us all to check out. Now, I absolutely loved this conversation. I found the subject matter of David's book fascinating, and I was so lucky to be able to dig into it further with David. As you will hear, and despite my very best efforts to prepare, I was more than a little out of my depth at times. No change there, I hear you say. I'm still trying to get my head around the effect of parenting and upbringing on IQ, especially as hopefully in the next few weeks I'll be a parent myself. But David remained patient throughout. And I'm more determined than ever to invite some thick guests on this show so I can actually come across reasonably well informed for once. As ever, I will reflect on some of the key things I have learnt and pondered since our conversation in my takeaway at the end of the show. 
Now, just before we crack on, if you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service, or event to thousands of intelligent, engaged, and quite simply, incredible podcast listeners, then I am now offering the opportunity to sponsor episodes of this podcast. Just drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to find out more about the packages available. And I'll put a link to that address in the show notes. Anyway, I will deprive you no longer as I introduce you to David Dido. Enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, David, so welcome to the podcast. And we start, as we always do, with the math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? I'm going to say the number three because it's the magic number. <laughs> what do you mean by the magic number? Have you not ever listened to the track by De La Soul? Oh, I see where you're going. Nice touch. Okay, yeah, good. That would be a good time for me to cue in the music in the background now. I might, might go for that. Very nice. Good answer. Good answer. How about uh, what was your favourite topic in maths as a student, David? Uh, well, I, I struggled with maths as a student um, and I thought I was very bad at it. And I failed it when um, first run through. And I had to, when I tr trained as a teacher, I had to retake my maths GCSE in order to be accepted onto the teach training course. Wow. And, uh, I know, I know. And, um, and I did the old intermediate paper and I got a B which I'm told is quite good. Yeah, it's as good as you could have got on that paper, I think. And I was still disappointed I didn't get higher, but um, uh, even though it wasn't possible. But um, but it, so when I was doing that, I got really into probability. Um, and, and although it sort of, it made my head hurt a lot, um, I, it, it's probably the branch of maths I find most fascinating. That's interesting. And it's, it's interesting this day because well, when Carl Hendrick uh, was on the show, he talked about how um, when he was at school, he wasn't a particularly big fan of maths. And I asked him, and I'm going to ask you the same thing. Looking back at it now with with all that you know, what, what do you put it down to? What what was the issues kind of first time around? Was it with you? Was it your attitude? Was it the way you were taught? What what was it? Hard to say. I think probably it was. I, I'm not sure why, but I felt I, I had a real anxiety about maths, and and I would find myself feeling quite panicky, um, and and that was a very uncomfortable feeling, and um, because I didn't want to feel that feeling, I found it preferable to say oh, I can't be bothered. Yes, that's very interesting. But you enjoy it. Like, do you still you, you would you be doing it kind of recreationally now? Would you have any interest in maths just on a casual well, basis? Well, not not really no to be to be frank i mean i'm i'm interested in in statistics uh and and i've learned a lot about statistics over the the last few years but i wouldn't you know i, I say learned a lot because i started from such a low base <laughs> um but 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 you know so i find it really really interesting and i really like you know i recently read a great book called the ai delusion by um a fella called gary smith and um, which is all about, you know, how uh, people's sort of, you know, illiteracy in this area causes us to make some very stupid um, decisions and, and think silly things. Um, so I'm really interested in that. 
Nice. Well, I'll tell you what, you've endeared yourself to the maths teaching audience there anyway, David, with that. You haven't dismissed maths out of hand, so we're, 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 do, we're doing all right here. We're doing all right. And final speed dating question. What job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education? I'd like to be a foreign correspondent. Really? Foreign correspondent? Any particular country? No, I, that, no, I'd like to go to a lot of places. I'd like to go to war zones and I'd like to wear a flak jacket. <laughs> be more like kate and nice fantastic answer well just before we dive into your career this is a kind of a last minute addition to, to the agenda i wanted to talk to you about so i've just been thinking about this on, on the train coming back from london and whenever i'm lucky enough to speak to english teachers i'm always fascinated on their views firstly on numeracy across the curriculum because it's something that kind right. of we we as maths teachers kind of have to push and it's it almost sometimes feels like we're trying to shoehorn maths into other subjects so yeah. as as an English teacher, what, what was your view on numeracy across the curriculum? And did you find it something that was easy to get into your lessons or did it feel a bit forced? Well, the way uh, when I was a teacher, the numeracy across the curriculum agenda was always really stupid. So it's <laughs> like just put numbers in for the sake of it. So, you know, you'd have you'd have lesson feedback where you, they said things like, oh, you could have counted the lines in that poem. <laughs> and, I, and I genuinely thought that was a waste of everybody's time. Um, and I think that I think that numeracy is the wrong part of maths to put across the curriculum. I would rather look at mathematical thinking across the curriculum, which I think really is genuinely relevant. So, you know, what would fit in a subject like English is being able to say, OK, so let's let's divide. Um, I do you know if we're, if we're comparing something, let's look at the things that are different and the things that are similar. And maybe we can use you know, mathematical tools like like a Venn diagram to think like that um, and, and sort of show or let's let's look at um, uh, the incidence of particular types of words in a, in a text. And let's and let's plot that on a on a on a chart so we can see how they rise and fall. Those sorts of things actually can shed some sort of insight as opposed to being bolt ons for the sake of it. That's interesting. So using the tools, perhaps, as opposed to the content itself might be the way forward. I like I like that. And let, let, let me fl flip it around then, David. Okay. What's, what's your view on, on kind of literacy across the curriculum? Well, that's, just, that's just as bollocks, Craig. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, and I say this as somebody that does a lot of training on literacy across the curriculum. And, I, and the first thing I say is, you know, it is absolutely not the job of science teachers or maths teachers to be teaching kids how to use apostrophes or any of that sort of stuff. Um, I think that teachers, no matter their subject, need to know enough to be not making heinous errors in their own sort of communication. And, and ideally, they know enough that when a, when a student in their class commits some sort of, you know, foul, when they get something wrong, to be able to identify what they've done and how to how to make sure they don't do it again but i certainly don't think they should be teaching stuff the bit that i think is is worth pursuing across the curriculum is is language and so mathematics has its own language uh it's it's mode of communication it's discourse as does science as does languages as does you know, history. And so getting teachers to think about helping children to develop their ability to communicate their understanding of mathematics uh, in the classroom, I think is a better bet. 
and less likely to run into sort of irritating teachers into doing stuff like in the same way that I felt about having to count words in a poem. <laughs> Fascinating. That's great stuff, that David. Well, I, I wonder to kind of tee us up for what we're going to talk about later. You can just you can just take listeners through your career from where it all started for you to, to where you are now, if that's all right. Okay. Uh, well, I, I, I was quite a late entrance to teaching, so I was 28 when I started. Uh, back in the late 90s and um and so i i worked as a you know i worked in schools for 12 years in various different comprehensives mainly in the southwest mainly in western supermare i don't know if you know western supermare it's all the south to me that day okay. well i live in bristol and we call it western super nightmare <laughs> sometimes heroin on sea um, it's, so it's that kind of place and uh and and so you know i worked i worked in western for nine years um and uh and that sort of certainly had a lot of influence on me anyway i um i gave i, I gave up teaching i mean and because uh i was doing a job which i really really hated i was working in a school where i had ill-advisedly taken a job on the leadership team and my role as i understood it was to try and uh try and you know put get teachers who are on capability out of the school and I, and I, I felt it was against everything that I thought was right uh, and I felt very very miserable having to do that job and and at the same time I was getting requests from schools from from various institutions to come and do talks or to provide consultancy and I always had to say no I can't because I've got a job and uh, and so that combination of push and pull um, was what start you know sort of t- took me out of the classroom and and now leads me you know, led me to the dark side where uh, <laughs> i am a an education consultant can, can i just ask on that david because i i'm on a, I'm, I'm on a sabbatical from from teaching myself at the moment and whenever i'm lucky enough to um to to work with teachers either run a workshop or, or a conference i almost feel apologetic i almost kind of start yeah. by saying sorry um that i'm not day-to-day in the classroom do, do you feel that and and, and how do you kind of get around yeah, it I think, I think there's definitely a credibility issue um that you know and i i you know so the, the teachers sometimes ask me ask me oh do you miss it and what i feel most guilty about is the fact that i don't miss it <laughs> um, i mean i like i like teaching kids but that's not the job you know if, if if teaching was mainly about being in the classroom telling kids stuff and getting them to do stuff it would be a brilliant job but it's yeah, who would miss the marking and the parents' evenings and the paperwork and all of the the gubbins that goes alongside it? Uh, I don't miss any of that, honestly. Um, so, you know, what I get to do now, which I think is very, is great. I feel very spoiled by, is that one of the, if I work with schools on an ongoing uh, in an ongoing way, I sort of one of the things I specify is that I m- want to work with teachers where I model what I'm talking about and they watch me teach their students in their classrooms and then we talk about what I did and I found that much more useful than me watching them yes Um, so it's all the good stuff about being a teacher without any of the downside (laughs) I can certainly relate to that that's perfect and before we dive into to talking about your book which will be the main subject of this interview I always ask uh, guests about their favorite failure David now that this could be you can take this whichever way you want it could be from your kind of consultancy work or it could be from your teaching career but is there a moment where kind of things went wrong didn't go according to plan but but you actually learned something important from it 
Well, I mean, I was really thinking about this question because, I mean, the, the, there isn't really a prominent sort of spectacular failure, or or there were so many. But it, <laughs> um, but I do remember, it, uh, I think it was, uh, it must have been about two thousand and one, two thousand and two, and the school that I worked in was having an Ofsted inspection, and I just started at the school, uh, so I was a, I was a new teacher at a new school, and it and. And Ofsted decided from that inspection that the school needed to go into special measures. So you can, that gives you a sort of picture of what the place was like. And behaviour was very, very bad. And I remember I had this year seven class where if I could get them to spend part of the lesson in their seats, I deemed it a success. Uh, but but most of the time was spent firefighting and you know, trying to persuade them not to stab each other. <laughs> And 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 that class was observed by uh, an offset inspector, and you know we got to the end of the lesson, and she said, "Well, I'm afraid that was unsatisfactory." And I said, "Yeah, you know, I, fair enough." Uh, and and I said, "Okay, you know, I, I'll take. Of course, it wasn't satisfactory. Of course, it wasn't. But um, what would you have done?" And she said, "With that class, I've no idea." <laughs> And, and, and that was, that really kind of, you know, obviously that was not what you wanted to hear. It felt unfair. I mean, it was fair that the lesson was terrible. Uh, but the fact that nobody had a fix, or at least this person didn't, um, that was a really important moment for me because it made, it's, it, it, it made me for the first time think maybe it's not just my fault. Yes. And did it, I mean, do you have an answer to, to that now, David? Like, would you be able to do something different with that class, knowing what you know now? Um, well, I think probably not, because um, I think that what what I really found at that school is after I'd done a year and I came back, you know, in the next September, the same kids who'd been horrible for the previous year were suddenly fine. Mm. And they're like, oh, you've not, you're not going to leave. You must be all right. Yes. Well, will treat you a little bit better and just just putting time in made a difference but i mean i I do remember the deputy head at the school saying that um you know if anybody needed any support he'd he'd be happy to come provide support and naively i took him up on that and um you know i said oh yeah my year seven class can you come in and you know see what what can you give me some advice anyway he came in and they were mid-riot as as per and uh, he came in and they all sat down and stopped talking and, you know, looked respectful and he sort of told them off for a bit. And then he, 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 he said, let's have a word at break time. And I went to see it and I, he then left the room and then the class went back to exactly. They were the, you know, they caught up their arguments at the exact place they'd been before. He, <laughs> and anyway, so I saw him at break time and, I, and he said, oh, I think I've identified the problem. Um, I think you need to plan your lessons in more detail. <laughs> And, and I, you know, uh, it took me a while to kind of think this through because I had this initial objection to what he'd said. But because I'd been up like late that night planning the lesson that I had tried to deliver to that class. And, you know, it, well, it certainly wasn't a lack of effort. It may be, it may well be that my planning wasn't good enough. But but to say that it was a lack of planning was was felt hard. But the more I thought about it, the more it became clear that his intervention had required no planning whatsoever. He just pitched up. And and, and and certainly, you know, after I'd been at the school for some time, 
that became increasingly true for me. I could just pitch up in a class without, without really having done much planning at all and they'd be fine. You know, and then, and I, and I, then I'd be the smug person in the staff room going, oh, well, they're okay for me. And, uh, and, and it's, it's sort of, I think that one of the kind of important truths, um, of the way schools work is, uh, a line that I remember Tom Bennett saying once was that all schools are two schools. There's the school occupied by the young teacher, the, the, the supply teacher, the trainee teacher, and there's a school occupied by senior teachers, by, by, by experienced teachers, and they are different places. And, and when you, when you have seniority in a school, when you have experience, you go around in a bubble. You're, abs- you, complete you're absolutely right there, David. It's something I've, I've, I've talked about, about a little bit on this, on this podcast over the years. I think, I don't know if you'd agree with this. I think, um, changing schools as well is, is one of the, one of the things that isn't talked about enough how hard that can be because you can be, go from being well established in a school. I taught my first school in Formby for six years. I thought I was the bee's knees. I thought I had this teaching absolutely sorted. I went to my school in Bolton and I was in tears every night up until Christmas because I'd, I, I just couldn't teach that the kids had no time for me my year 10s at the time I think I'd had six maths teachers or something like that in the four years they'd been there so they just couldn't have cared less and it was horrendous and nobody prepared me everyone talks about how hard teaching is in your first few years but I don't think people talk enough about how hard it is to, to move schools once once you, you feel you're kind of getting better at teaching and it's almost kind of you're back to square one if that makes sense oh, it really does make sense I mean yeah, and this was more hidden. I mean, I remember moving from one school in Western Supermare to another school in Western Supermare. I went, I went to become head of English in this second school. And so I was moving school. But what I, I didn't really fully appreciate until years later is that I still had a reputation that kids there were like, oh, you taught my cousin down at the other school. And, and so I started there. And, and, and I was more senior because I was the head of a sub uh, department. And and so, you know, it really enabled me to believe I was the bee's knees for a little bit longer. But um, some years later, I went to work briefly at a school in Birmingham and I realised that, you know, yeah, what what your reputation in another school counts for absolutely nothing. You know, you're only as good as, you know, the people think you are. And, and, the, and what determines success and failure in schools where you've got nothing except, you know, the, the, the small, the small slice of the present, um, is the support networks offered by that school. And, and if you're fortunate to go to a school where they nurture their staff and they take behavior seriously, uh, then I think most, pretty much anyone can teach, can teach in a school like that. But if you're unfortunate enough to be in a school where the, where teachers are blamed for children's behavior, then, uh, then it's bloody hard. Yeah. You can be like, you know, you, even if you get it working, you're like a, you know, you're like a warlord in a failed state. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Super. Right. OK, Dave. Well, we, I want to talk about your book. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate on this podcast to get to to get to read and sometimes advanced, advanced copies like I got with your book. Some absolutely wonderful books. And I love this. I absolutely loved your book. So it's called Making Kids Cleverer, a manifesto for closing the advantage gap. And my first question for you, David, is were you a bit worried before you, you wrote this? Because it tackles some pretty controversial issues and we're going to dig into a load of them in this in this conversation. But was that ever was there ever doubts in your mind thinking, do I really want to go there talking about all this kind of stuff? 
Um, not before, when I started writing it, I, I guess I didn't fully appreciate how controversial uh, some of the stuff was. Um, what, what happened is partway through writing it in the summer of 2017, um, I, you know, I got involved in some sort of very unpleasant spat on social media where I, I was being called a racist and a eugenicist and things like that. And it made me, it so upset me, so sort of knocked me um, that I gave, you know, I, I didn't write anything for almost a year. You know, it was, uh, it was really, really hard to sort of get back into it from, from that. And, um, and, and I, yeah, I did, I did have, I, you know, I did consider just dumping, ditching what I'd written and, and not carrying on. Uh, so, so yeah. Uh, it did, certainly did go through my mind. Flipping heck. And again, again we, without kind of digging too deep into it, that was, um, I, I, I was just an outside observer, just kind of watching this this thing unfold on Twitter. But again, that, that's the kind of dark side of, of social media, isn't it? It's, it? Well, it is. And there was some real sort of vicious stuff and some really, some, some individuals behaving in ways which, uh, you know, you'd hope people didn't. The, the, there was a positive aspect. I did learn uh, some stuff that not just about sort of how to cope with people being horrible. I actually genuinely learned some stuff and revised some of the things that I thought I understood. And um, and I do think that that as a result of going through that experience, it's a better book. Good. Okay, well, that, that that's superb. Well, um, let, let me ask you then, again, just before we, we dive into the exact subject matter, you mentioned there perhaps even changing and refining some of your views as the writing process was going on. Were, were there yep. any particular beliefs you had, David, either before you started writing or, or throughout the writing process that actually turned out to be wrong once you once you reviewed the evidence and you read up more about it? Um well, I, I think for my biggest failing on an individual level before writing it was that I thought, and I really did think that I'd understood heritability, and um, and I'd have you know various people sort of pointing out to me that I didn't, and I felt very sort of you know, affronted by their their assumption that I was stupid as I saw it, and and I, and it became clear to me that my understanding was not as good as 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 it now is um, so i definitely learned uh there you know that's always nice to sort of have that reminder that we're you know um you know that that need that need to be humble um so that was the sort of i suppose that was the biggest area i think that you know so and that's the, the area that that's the big area of controversy that that sort of surrounds people writing about intelligence is the whole idea of of the extent to which it might be um, a matter of, of genetics, um, and um, and so you know that's the, that's definitely the bit where I felt I've learned the most because I'm I'm not a scientist I'm not um, I don't have any expertise in this area beyond the reading and the and the and the conversations that I've had so um, so that's that's where I think that the book has probably improved most and it was quite interesting I read I read after writing it after it had gone off to the publishers I read. Robert Plowman's book, Blueprints, which had I read before I finished, I would definitely have had some sort of response to, um, because he's a, he's about as an extreme her, uh, hereditarian as you can get, I think, and still be intellect, you know, intellectually respectable. Um, and, 
you know, that he makes some very strong, powerful arguments in that book. And one of the things he notably says is that school matters, but it doesn't make a difference. And, and obviously my, my book is about the fact that school makes, might make, could make a difference. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I definitely, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, my, my views are contra his. And, and, and I think that probably the person who is, least acknowledged in the book but who in retrospect i understand now i probably owe the greatest debt to is a is a geneticist called eric turkheimer who um who's you know it it's almost i sort of worked out from by post hoc sort of piecing things together that my views are most closely aligned to his got it God. Well, I, I'll tell you what, like, again, it's, it's, it's one of those subject areas, David, where, like, I think all teachers are fascinated by it, that the concepts of intelligence, ability, knowledge, what we as teachers can influence, what we can't influence, and so on and so forth. So before we kind of dive into all that, yeah. we've, we've got to get some of these big words sorted yeah. out straight away. So intelligence is, is, is one that we, we, we can't carry on until we kind of define this. So what, what do you mean when you when you talk about intelligence? Well, if I, if I may, um, I'm going to read a short quotation, um, which comes from um, a, you know, it, it, there's nothing, there's nothing that you could say was a, was a kind of a consensus position amongst all intelligence researchers. But I think this, this definition is about as close as I've, uh, as I found. And it, intelligence here is defined as a very general mental capability that amongst other things, involves the ability to reason, plan, solve problems, think abstractly, comprehend complex ideas, learn quickly, and learn from experience. It's not merely book learning a narrow academic skill or test-taking smarts. Rather, it reflects a broader and deeper capability for comprehending our surroundings, catching on, making sense of things, or figuring out what to do. So that's, I think that's my favourite definition that I've I've found. So when I talk about intelligence, that's what I'm, that's that's the definition I've got in my head. I, I, I like it. Now I was um, last night I was in London and I met up with a couple of friends from university and I was talking about this this interview because again I've, I've been telling loads of people about the ideas in the book just because it's it's fascinating it's controversial and so on and I, I'm, I mentioned intelligence and, and my friend said it isn't intelligence just kind of like a, a computer's processing power it's kind of how quick you're able to take an information rejig it and kind of splurt it out into something that makes sense is that overly simplistic yeah <laughs> I'll, tell, I'll tell him where does it go what's it lacking that what, uh okay so well that's that's one part of it so that's that's uh one one uh, one way of thinking about intelligence which i found quite useful is uh, breaking it into two separate components. So that's that's what's the bit that you've described there, the sort of speed of processing, that's sometimes called fluid intelligence. And your fluid intelligence is, is essentially your raw reasoning ability. You're able the ability to 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 try and solve a problem about which you've got absolutely no prior knowledge, sort of going from naught to sixty and how long that takes you. Um, so what that's missing as a definition is the other side, which is the, um, you know, the, the experiences that you've had and the influence that learning from those can have. Uh, and that's that's sometimes called in the research crystallized intelligence, which is essentially your ability to use what you know to solve problems. 
Got it. And am I right in saying, David, that your argument would be that the fluid component of that is is fixed and the crystallized can be improved? Is is that right? Yeah, essentially, that's right. I mean, so what we know about fluid intelligence is that it, it increases as we as we age and it reaches 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 its peak in our early to mid 20s. And then it starts hemorrhaging. Um and we're and so from our mid twenties onwards, we're losing our crystallized ability, our speed of processing, if you want. Um, but the 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 crystallized bit, the, which is essentially our ability to use what we know, um, that carries on increasing well, well into a old age. And it's it's not just that that is um, something that we can directly affect. It's relatively, or certainly what I argue in the book is, it's relatively straightforward to to increase crystallized intelligence uh, it may there may be at some point in the future where fluid intelligence becomes something that's malleable but i think it's it's probably fair to sum up the current state of research as saying you know although there's lots of people who believe you can affect fluid intelligence um the the there's certainly nothing that would be practical in a school setting as of, of the current state of research Got it. Got it. Now, the first kind of area of controversy that I often wander into, David, is, is this talk of kind of high ability and low ability. So so on the podcast, we've had them um, kind of prominent advocates of mixed attainment teaching. And even on those interviews, I accidentally say ability when I mean attainment and it, it all kicks off. Now, is, is it right to say high ability and low ability students? Is, is that a thing or, or is it should we just be sticking to attainment? I think. I think it probably is a thing that 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 some people are just more able than others. But I think that we're not very good at identifying who those people might be. We're far less good than we think we are. And and I think that a lot of the time that when we perceive children as, as being high ability, what we're actually seeing is we're looking at the quantity and the quality of what they know. And um, and we're mistaking that for some sort of inherent measure of intelligence. And I think that that's that's potentially quite harmful. Got it. Got it. I'll, I'll stick to high attaining and low attaining. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll play it safe with that. Um, my other thing I wanted to get my head around, and for years I've been fascinated with this, is, is IQ. So IQ, as far as my limited understanding goes, is is measurable via kind of tests. And there's all different ones for that. What is IQ measuring, David? Is it as simple as saying IQ is measuring intelligence, or again, is that is that missing something? Yeah, it is missing something, and it, it, this is an, you know a wide you know it's very difficult I think for people to get their heads around this because IQ is an attempt to measure intelligence, um, but as you can see with the definition I gave you, it's such a sort of broad and nebulous concept that. Um, it's it's a proxy. The best I think we can say is that it, you know the IQ is a mathematical construct which is a proxy for intelligence. Um, and what IQ tests do is they they're made up of a battery of subtests and they measure all sorts of different things from you know working memory capacity to the you know, our ability to rotate shapes, our ability to spot patterns. Um, as well as our, you know, things like um, almost general knowledge type stuff, so our vocabulary and mental arithmetic and things like that. So when you do an IQ test, you do 
depending on the test, between six, at least six different subtests, uh, from which you would then get a score, an I, a single IQ score, which would attempt to sort of su summarise and put together your performance on each of those subtests. And, and the idea being is that the number that you get is in some way a reflection of your cognitive ability. But but it wouldn't be like it, it can go wrong, can it? In the sense that you could get you can have a, a low IQ score and yet be capable in kind of different areas. Would would, would that be right? Is it, well, does it does it fail systematically? I, I guess is what I'm saying, or is it is it kind of just kind of random? It, the errors it makes. Despite, despite all its faults and failings as a measure, it's probably the, well, it's, it's almost certainly the best measure that we have in the social sciences of any psychological trait. Um, so, the, the, and the fact that makes it meaningful, the thing that makes it meaningful isn't the score itself, which, which is meaningless, it's just a number, but it's that those scores go on to predict things in the real world that we consider important or valuable. And so go on. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was going to say, cause that was a bit, when I was reading that, I was like, are you joking here? Some of the things that IQ was predicting, I mean, j just rattle a few off David. I was, I, I was shocked by this. Yeah. So, um, one of the, you know, some of the things which I think are quite interesting uh, are things that other, that other people sort of say, Oh, maybe, maybe education should be about sort of developing creativity or something like that. And, and so it's, it's, it's worth noting that creativity, um, correlates with, with IQ scores, which what that means is the higher your IQ score, the more likely you are to do well on a test of creativity, um, which by the way are far less robust. And you're more likely to do well on a test of something like leadership. Um, so you're likely to be a better leader if you've got a higher IQ score. Um, and, and, you know, for what's more interesting are the areas where the empirical evidence we've got butts up against people's beliefs. So there's a general kind of sense in out in the world that if you if you've got um, a, a high IQ, you're much more likely to suffer with mental health problems. And the reverse is true. So having a higher IQ score predicts better mental health um, to surprisingly well. Uh, particularly, we've got quite a lot of uh, research done on on things like schizophrenia. And so essentially what we seem to find is that although there's no doubt uh, a biological component to to a to a condition like schizophrenia, um, that the higher your IQ, the less severe the symptoms that you're likely to to present, um, which is quite interesting. And then the things other things like. If you've got a higher IQ, you're less likely to be the victim of a violent crime and you're less likely to commit a violent crime, um, both of which are, you know, quite interesting ideas. Maybe. And this is this is this isn't something that, that's testable, perhaps. But maybe that's because if you're if you've got a, if you're if you've got a higher IQ, maybe you're a bit more likely to talk yourself out of a dangerous situation or not even be in it in the first place because you've thought through the consequences. And although you're, you're, you might be just as likely to commit another sort of crime, you'll tend not to commit violent crimes and for similar reasons, perhaps. Uh, and and so for the same reason, possibly, you're much less likely to have an accident. So IQ definitely correlates quite well with things like accidents and then therefore longevity. So the higher your IQ is, the longer you're likely to live. Um, can, I, can 
I just check, David? Because again, we always have we all have, we have the classic thing with correlation and causation yeah. and all this. It's not it's not the case, is it? That it's just the higher your IQ, the more likely you are to to, to get a better job, be better yeah, off, and, the, and and therefore be in situations perhaps where you're not going to be susceptible yeah. to being a victim of crime. It, it, it's, it's not that simple, is it? It's not, not that simple because you can control for those sorts of things mm. with factor analyses and. Uh, and so when when you hold social economic status constant, for instance, and sort of take that out as a factor, then you can still see these these correlations between IQ and these other measures that we think are important. So it's important. You're right. It's important to say that, that you know, it could be that all these other things are predicting IQ or that there's some other thing that's predicting both IQ and all these other things. But, um, you know, the, the probability is because all of these positive correlations are pointing in the same way that that it that we can make meaningful measurable predictions about somebody with a higher iq got it and what, would it be fair to say as well david that the kind of the thrust of the argument running through your book is that iq is a really important thing a really important kind of concept and crucially it's something that that can be improved by schools by parents by by st students themselves is is that fair or again is 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 that too no, simplistic? I don't, I don't say that i think iq provides a really interesting data set so because we've got quite a lot of data on iq scores which which show us these things it can it's it's provides an interesting sort of template somewhere to look for information but i don't I, I don't i'm certainly not interested in the idea of improving children's iq scores because because those are just numbers they are meaningless in any kind of individual sense they they provide us information when you look at large populations so that you can say on average it is true that somebody with a high iq is more likely to have positive like life outcomes but it's certainly not true to say that on an individual level. So trying to improve somebody's IQ, I think, would be a bizarre thing to do. Got it. But trying to improve their intelligence, that's, that's, yeah, the, thing, that's, that's the thing we're after. I think it's really important to try and break those things apart. So, so you know, the, the, the number that we call IQ, we can, because it's a number, we can do stuff with it. We can play around with it and sort of see what it does. But it but it's only representing something that's that's in your mind. And so I think it's more interesting to think about the things which are, that, that, that number might represent. Got it. Makes perfect sense. Um, next thing I want to talk about, David. Now, I, my jaw was on the floor when I, when I was reading this section on, on hereditability and, and peer groups. And again, I was reading it at night. My wife's pregnant at the moment. She's trying to get to sleep and I'm nudging her, getting her awake, saying you won't believe this because we're obviously contemplating parenting at the moment. It's our first child and how it's so important for us to be good parents and all this. And I'm reading some of this stuff that you're writing, thinking... I'm a wasting my time here. So let, let me di let me dig into this and I'll tell you why I found it so fascinating. And I'm going to quote, uh, quote a couple of things that you wrote here. So the first thing you, um, that, that struck me, she said, roughly half the differences between how we turn out are attributable to our genes, half to peer groups we choose for ourselves and approximately none to the way we were raised. And then later on, you say, if a group thinks school is for geeks and trying hard is for losers, individuals within the group will learn less. What starts as a different attitude to schoolwork might well end up as a difference in 
in average IQ. Now, this to me, David, seems absolutely massive. The, the fact that the kind of influence of peer groups compared to the declining influence of, of parents as, as students go older, uh, as, as, as students get older, the role, obviously, genes um, play in this as well. But what's the implications of this, David? And, and just to start off with, like, what, how can teachers and schools kind of tap into this? Well, I mean, that's that's uh, that's the that, that's the key question. That's the that's the whole sort of point of the endeavour. So, um, I mean, there is there is definitely a point of view which which essentially says that schools can't make a difference to in, to, to individual differences. Um, they can't they can't sort of you know that the, our genes have such a, an important. Um, bearing on how we turn out that that what school offers doesn't change the differences between individuals that that if you didn't have what school offers then that would would make that would matter that would make a difference but if everybody experiences the same kind of education you said now that's kind of i don't know i think that's kind of true and not true at the same time or true and tr and trivially true so um so to try and sort of take pick up on what you've asked so the the first thing and this I think lots of people feel very upset about this is that there's 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 a, a really considerable body of evidence now which shows that um, parenting doesn't seem to account or I should say within the literature it's called shared environment. The shared environment that siblings um, experience doesn't seem to have any bearing on on the on how they turn out as individuals when at adulthood. It obviously makes massive differences to their childhoods. And so and, and, and it's certainly true that if you um, systematically abuse or neglect children, that will have a permanent effect on them. But that hopefully no parent is contemplating doing that anyway. So um, that's that's not something that should really, I think, affect our view on this, because as parents, we're trying to make positive differences. And, and so the. What the re what the research findings seems to suggest quite strongly is that whilst you can whilst you can really improve the quality of your children's lives whilst they're children and that's really important to do what you probably can't do is mould them to, into being the sort of person that you want them to be and the reason that children end up like their parents is because they share their their genetic material. Can uh, I just ask us the yeah. bit I the bit I couldn't get my head around was if. Parenting is really important in, in childhood and it, like, whatever age, you know, up to 11 or, yeah. or whatever it may be. But then it isn't important afterwards. What kind of happens to all that experience up to, up to age 11? Does it just kind of disappear overnight and then all of a sudden it's just the peer groups take over in terms of influence? Uh, so let's let's sort of take an example and we'll make it concrete. So let's say your parents want you as a child to eat healthily. And so they say, right, every mealtime, we're going to give you a load of vegetables to eat and we're going to we're going to nag you to eat your greens. And, you know, if you don't clear your plate, there'll be some sort of consequence and we won't give you loads of sweet food. And, and parents can do that. And that obviously makes a massive difference to children's health or it makes a difference to children's health. Now, by the time you're an adult, you can decide, you know, your parents have a declining influence on your ability to eat your greens. Eventually you leave home and they just don't know whether you're eating broccoli or not. 
Um, it's, it's none of their business anymore. Um, and, and essentially what this suggests is whether you eat broccoli or not, when you can choose for yourself, is, a, is attributable to you sharing the, gene- the genetic material of your parents, not the effect of them trying to instill a good habit into you. I see. So yeah. benefits that you've had as a child from not having scurvy, those obviously persist. Got it. And it would be the same with intelligence, would it, David? The, the fact that parents would be able to, again, obviously they've passed on the genetic side of things, but they they would be able to influence intelligence in in the kind of younger years, but then no influence later on. Again, that that's the bit that I just, I just couldn't quite seem to, to grasp it, if that makes let's, sense. Let's take the example of broccoli and change it to an example of reading books. Yes, so as a parent, you've decided, that you, you know, it's really you're really interested in your child's cognitive development. So you, you, one of the things you do is you commit to reading to them every night and you do this religiously and you get through all of these books. Now, the experience that they have of being given those the, the, all of that information is that you're adding something to them, which they can then think about and having having being the ability to to the all of that new stuff in their head makes a difference to the things that they can go on and think about. And that does make a real appreciable difference to their, 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 how well they're likely to do in school and, and all these other things. Now, once there's a, there's a point and I'm, I'm kind of at that point now with my own children who are teenagers where, uh, my oldest, um, daughter in particular is, um, it's 15 and she's decided at the moment that uh, she's not interested in reading and um, and she doesn't want me to read to her. And and I and so my the effort that I made reading Harry Potter and, and The Hobbit and Narnia and all of this other stuff that I read to her as a kid. That had an influence while it was going on, but it has not influenced her to continue being a reader at the moment. She set her face against that. And that's only her ability to choose is only going to increase as she continues on into adulthood. So by the time she's left home, I'll have almost no, essentially no influence on whether or not she reads. If she does decide to read later, that will be attributable to the fact that she shares 50 percent of my genetic material, 50 percent of my wife's genetic material. And, and that might influence her to be a reader later on in life. And it might not. Because we don't, we don't get to, we don't get to mold her in that way. What we do get to do is we get to nurture her while she's a child. We get to look after her. We get to keep her safe. We get to give her the best childhood that we're capable of giving her in the hope that she can, she's then able to go off and do whatever she wants to do, whatever she's going to do. Got it. Got And where does this where does this kind of number of you say roughly half the differences are attributable to genes, half to the peer groups? Is that is that pretty well established that it's roughly yeah, 50-50? Yeah, that's that's pretty well established. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I mean, it varies with I mean, I don't want to go into sort of how heritability varies as you get older, but because it could take us a long time. But um Essentially, what we know from looking at various different sources, such, for instance, twin and adoption studies, is that if you look at um, adoptive siblings, so that's children who, who share no genetic material, 
who are raised in the same environment, they are not at all similar. They don't share any systematic similarities. But if you look at identical twins who are reared apart, they're pretty much as similar as identical twins raised together. Got it. Flipping. And because the thing the thing that was just kind of surprising me about all this is that I well, I mean, did it surprise you, David? Were you aware of the influence of of, of peer groups on kind of intelligence or, or whatever? Was this a surprise to you when you were researching this? Uh, well, so I I mean, I came across this information when I re- first when I read um, the Nurture Assumption, jo- Judith Rich Harris's uh, book from the um, early 90s who was kind of the first person to sort of call foul on the, the nature-nurture debate and go, hang on a second, you know, well, this thing we're calling nature, when we look at the evidence, it doesn't actually seem to be accounting for anything. Um, and and that we need to... So her theory um, is that peer effects seem to be much more persistent than, than, than parenting effects. Now, I think there's... You know, it's fair to say that's been called into question as well. And, and, and this was one of the things that I felt reading Robert Plowman's book, Blueprint, is that he makes the point, and I thought, you, you know, I hadn't thought about it quite this way before, is that peer groups are difficult to unpick from your genetic inheritance because the people that you pick to be your friends and your preferences for what a friend will be are, in, to, are to some extent determined by your biology. Yeah. And, yeah, and, ag- and again, that would be, this was the other bit I couldn't untangle, because that would be almost something you, you kind of, your parents will, could influence as well, right? Well, like you that- can influence this, but not easily. So you, when kids are very little, you can say as a parent, you're not playing with him, you're <laughs> not going to hang out with her. And what you say goes completely. Now, as children get older, they're making those decisions and, and they're, you know, maybe they're not even telling you what they're doing. Maybe they're defying you. Um, you're, but you've got increasingly less control on what children can do as they become closer to adults. And then when they're adults, you've got no control at all. And if we just go back to that, that line I read out before where you say if the, if the group thinks schools is for geeks and trying hard is for losers, individuals within the group will learn less. What starts as a different in attitude to schoolwork might well end up as a difference in, in average IQ. Yeah. What What's the implication there? Again, just just for some massive issues here, David, like setting versus mixed attainment. Like it, there's a there's an implication there, right, that. That almost if you and this I'm going to get absolutely torn apart for saying this and my words will come out completely wrong here. But I've certainly taught some kind of bottom set groups where there's there's almost sometimes it's kind of an attitude to to kind of disaffected attitude to to not do work. But also there's sometimes within those groups, well, often within those groups, there isn't almost kind of the the aspirational student who's kind of pushing the group on, getting things right, that the other kids are saying, oh, I, I, I want to try and get to that level. So with, if that makes sense. So within kind of attainment groups, subsetted groups, you almost kind of are manufacturing potentially this negative peer group. And obviously in top sets, it could flip the other way around. You could be manufacturing this kind of positive peer group. And firstly, does that make any sense at all? And is that an issue? Yeah, it's an issue, definitely, because, you know, that's teacher's lived experience, isn't it? And I think what we're, what we're tempted to sometimes say is we look at children that have been put in a bottom set, for want of a better word, 
and we look at their kind of negative attitude to school and we look at their you know the fact that, that they're not wanting to do stuff and they don't have hires and we just think you know the temptation is to think well that's because they're low ability mm. but which i think is you know i think that's nefarious i don't you know i don't think anyone's sort of deliberately setting out to kind of ruin children's life chances but i think there's something hugely negative about that and so um you know, if you are a child that has a positive attitude to school and really wants to learn and all the other stuff and, and you've been for some, let's say you've been put into a group of people where the, 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 the group norm is to moan about work, is to try and sort of loaf about and take things easy and sort of, and, and, and systematically sees any attempts to work hard as being, you know, stupid or wrong in some way it takes a very brave individual to defy that group norm yes. and there are some people who do obviously um it's it's not it certainly isn't fate that if you're in a bottom set then you know your life's horrible but it's just harder and so and especially you know by the time that children are in uh, teenagers in secondary schools probably they're at that age they're the most influenced by these sorts of peer effects that um that it's that it's very difficult for children to say no actually i really value working hard doing well and um up yours because <laughs> because that's social suicide in a lot oh, of ways ab absolutely and so would you go as far to say that the implication from this is that that setting's bad and mixed attainment is the way forward uh, i think that would just be too easy to say that um, I, 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 unfortunately, the world is rarely um, as black and white as that. Um, I think I think what's what's important is whether however you have arranged a, a group of children, a class of children, the most important thing is to work on the social norms at play in that group and just try and create a culture where it's it, working hard is seen as uh, something that's approved of. And And I'm not suggesting that that's trivial or easy. But I, and it and it might be that that's an easier job where you put, um, you know, where, where you're not systematically saying to some children, you're less able to do well in this subject than those other children in that other class. Uh, but it's but it's not impossible. Um, and I think that I think that how well children do in that setting has far more to do with. Um, the cultural norms within within a group, within a school, within a society. So, you know, I mean, it's a it's sort of a hoary old chestnut that in 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 countries like Singapore and China, that children don't tend to see being bad at maths as something that really exists. It's either you work hard or you don't work hard. <clears throat> two two things spring to mind here, David. The, the first is, on a positive note, it sounds like this is something that individual teachers can certainly influence themselves in their own classroom. If they, wh whether they teach in a mixed attainment or setted, if they can create these these norms or influence these norms, and that may be something as simple as moving the the kids around, breaking up kind of disaffected groups, trying to mix things up that way, or keep kind of drilling these positive messages. Yeah. And that that certainly sounds something practical teachers. Can do. I think but, but, so, and I think, and again, you know, the, the the point that we were saying at the top of the interview about getting kids to behave is easier in some schools than other schools because you're supported. So, if you're doing this as an individual 
teacher in a school where the culture is set against you, then that's going to be a much more difficult job than doing it in a setting where everybody is is aligned to that value. And then as, a, as an individual, I mean, one of the things that I feel is, I think is quite useful for a teacher to think about is the idea that what you permit, you promote. So anything that you allow to happen in your sacred space, your classroom, becomes something that is at least tacitly approved of. And um, and, so, and that's something you've got huge control of as a teacher. Now, that, again, I'm not saying that's easy because if you're if you're if you're in a, an environment where there's no support externally and you're trying to have high value, high expectations and, and change um, social norms against a countervailing culture. That's exhausting, but it's possible. But if you're doing it where everybody's doing the same thing, then it becomes very difficult for individuals to say, I don't care because yes. they're fighting a huge tide. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And, and and the other thing I was going to say, now I'm, I'm an avid reader of your blog and, and have been for many years, and it almost sounded like you're on the verge of advocating kind of growth mindset philosophy here, David, <laughs> when, when you were talking about high aspirations yeah. and, you know, these positive messages. Surely that can't be right. Which? Uh, you advocating growth mindset. Well, I mean, if you want to call that growth mindset, <laughs> well, I'm fine. I just don't think that's what growth mindset is. Dig into that just a, a, a touch more for me here, because, again, you, you'd you often see this in schools, wouldn't you? And we, we've talked about this on the podcast before. You, you often see schools trying to adopt this kind of growth mindset philosophy, and often it's a couple of posters on the wall and a token assembly here or there. And it, it's no surprise that it doesn't seem to have this um, the positive impact that people hope. But the way you're talking there, it's it's kind of almost just kind of common sense from a teacher, yeah, right? It's, exactly. It's it's sort of not writing people off, and um, you know, and and you know, predetermining their your you know ideas about success and failure on very very little evidence. And I think that if you want to call that a growth mindset, I, don't, I just don't care. You know, you might as well if it if it makes you feel good, then fine. But but then when we go and make empirical claims about what what growth mindset interventions can achieve, that's not what they are. That's not what the empirical claims are about having those sort of lovely values. Um, so I think it's just more useful not to conflate the two ideas. That makes that makes perfect sense. Um, I, I want to move now, David, if it's all right, onto another massive area. And this, this is knowledge. Now, this is okay. something that um, D- Dylan Williams been on the show a couple of times, and um, he's got quite strong views on what knowledge is and what knowledge isn't and so on and so forth. Yeah. Now, I want to open this up with, again, another quote from you. You say, my, t- my contention is that you are what you know. Knowledge is all there is. So well, what do you mean by that, David? So your ability to think is dependent on you having something to think about. Does that sound fair enough? Yes, I think so. Yes. Yeah, you think so. <laughs> so that what you're thinking, what you can think about is I'm calling that knowledge. Got it. And that's different from just is that. Is it different from facts? Yeah. Uh, In- so, well, I mean, it's uh, facts is a subset of knowledge. Tell me something that would be knowledge, but not a fact. Uh, something so uh, something that would be knowledge, but not a fact. Um, so something like how to tie your shoelaces. Right. So 
would it be and again just, just so i can get my head around this would would it be fair to say because how to taste shoelaces is kind of a procedure would you say is knowledge just a combination of facts and procedures or again is there something I, else in there I say procedures are accumulations of facts R okay or procedures but, are accumulations of, of not just facts but but thousands and thousands of items of, of knowledge which have been chunked together to make it seem that they're a procedure Okay, but then there's Point still something. There's something post-hoc rationalization. But there's still something else, is there? So tying your shoelace isn't a procedure. That's that's something that that's different. It, it isn't a fact. Something you either know how to do, or it's something that you don't know how to do. And if you know how to do it, you can be more or less skilled at it. Got it. Okay, yeah, yeah uh, that that makes perfect sense. And the other thing that I've sort of missed out here is that so so part of what knowledge is in in the world view that i'm promoting is that it's what you can think about but it's also what you think with because there's there's lots of things which i which you know greg that you don't know you know <laughs> run that by me again that i know there are things which i'm i'm taking it on faith that you know but you are not able to actively think about Okay. Can you give me an example? Of yes. Go on. I'm going to make the assumption that you're uh, you're a fluent reader of English. Hopefully, yeah. Not too bad. So if you're a fluent reader of English, your ability to do that depends upon you knowing how to pronounce over 170 different graphemes or, or ways of writing sounds in English. Okay. But if I were to give you a test and say, can you write down all of those 170 spelling alternatives that, are make, that make up English, you probably wouldn't be able to do it. Yes, yeah, yeah definitely wouldn't. So that's, that, that's an example of something that you know, but you're not able to think actively about. Ah, right, okay. Right. And... <sighs> Flipping it. Again, I, I find this fascinating, but I must admit, I, I find this hard to get my head around. And, and, and one one question is, again, this is not me trying to be yeah. awkward or anything, but it, do, does this matter? Is it important that we do kind of split knowledge up into these different components? Well, what's kind of the, the, the practical benefits of, of doing so? Well, I, I mean, no, I don't think it is important to split it up into lots of different things. I think that's unhelpful. Uh, and, and what one of the things that I hope... And people will take away from this book is to resist the temptation to do that right okay but it's just something that you so i think one of the big things that comes up a lot in conversations about education is people wanting to say that skills are somehow completely separate to knowledge and and i just think that's unhelpful I think it, we'd have a much better well, the things that we call skills. We'd have a much we'd be much better able to teach if we understood that they are that they are knowledge and that they're made up. Those those things that we've chunked together, they're made up of hundreds of thousands of different items which can be explicitly taught. Yes, got it, got it. And I, I'll tell you what, you, you said something before that, that really struck me there, particularly as, as a maths teacher, that procedures are essentially kind of items, of kind of a load of facts, which have kind of 
bundled, connected together, um, chunked together to form schema and so on and so forth. Because for many years, um, I made the mistake of, of kind of undervaluing kind of drills in terms of getting kids fluent in times tables and number bonds and all this kind of stuff and, and jump too far ahead into the kind of problem solving aspects. And I've, I've spoken at length about this in the past. I guess my question to you is, assuming that you agree with me that kind of these, these facts, these things that we can get from drills, whether it be in maths, whether it be in English or whatever, um, are important. How do we then turn those into the kind of chunk together into these more kind of, yeah, combined units of knowledge that are going to allow us to carry out procedures and do more complex things, if that makes sense. Okay. So what I've come to think is the most useful way to consider, um, knowledge is to think about it as being more or less flexible and so if, if i if i try here to give you a maths example oh now we're talking go on let's go this might be the one thing i've understood so far so let's go for it then. So, like, if i tell you that a squared plus b squared equals c squared is pythagoras's theorem yeah then then you know what pythagoras's theorem is yes and and then i can say to you what's pythagoras's theorem and you can say a squared plus B squared equals C squared. Right. And that's very inflexible. So pretty much the only thing you can do is answer that question. <laughs> yes. Now, if I carry on then showing you instances of how this applies to different areas of mathematics and giving you, um, it's letting you know that his, that, that Pythagoras' theorem would be useful in this particular example. And like, uh, that if, each iteration and each opportunity to practice application would make your your knowledge that we're you know would make your Pythagoras schema that much more useful. And so until eventually you you would arrive at a point where you could see a problem and go oh Pythagoras would be useful here. At which point you've got something really flexible. Got it. Now, in, in maths, and I don't know if this is this is true in English or other subjects, but we, we perhaps might refer to that as um, atomization. So taking something complex like Pythagoras, breaking it down into its kind of most granular, most right. smallest units. So first, what is the theorem? Secondly, recognizing when to right. use it. Thirdly, recognizing when not to use it, building it up like that, almost kind of teaching each explicitly and then bringing it back together. Is that something unique to maths or would that be something you no, I, I think that I think that the, the most branches of knowledge would have, you know, that would be that would be a respectable way to try and communicate complex ideas. Got it. And for me, the, the bit I find the hardest is, is bringing it together. Like it's it, it's kind of getting kids to see the, the bigger picture. Because okay. so I, I think that that's difficult because you can't do it. You can't do that. The, only they can do that. Mm. All you can do is show them expressions of or applications of or opportunities to practice this particular thing their ability to turn that into into a schema is 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 not is not something that you have control over it's it's up to them it's, it's interesting this because this like again I, I don't know how much of the background you know but I basically had a mid-career crisis about three years ago where I realized everything I've been teaching was was completely wrong and um, I completely changed all my opinions when I started reading about cognitive load theory and Bjork's work and, and so on and so forth but the bit 
you're absolutely right there, David, because the bit that I, I now often forget is I can't control what's going on in my kid's head. So like they've got to make the connections that I can help. I can I can help. I can direct yeah. their attention in specific ways. I can yeah. create conditions that yeah. are, are, are more suited to, and more likely for them to, to make those connections. But it, it's still it's still got to be the kids who've got to got to do it right. And And that's something that. I think sometimes gets kind of lost in in all the talk of cognitive science that, that it's not all about the teacher, if that makes sense. Oh God, yeah, it's yeah. I mean, the teacher has a role, but um, yeah, no, it's it's all about the what's going on in a person's mind. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. If only, <laughs> yeah, if I just wish I had a little bit more control over it sometimes. Well, but yeah, do you though? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, very true, very true. Um, and they need last... to be responsible. Yeah, that's, yeah. And, you know, where would that end? I think it's probably great that we don't. Yeah, I, I think I think you're probably right. Um, the final question on knowledge, uh, David, is you use the phrase powerful knowledge. Now, this is this has always interested me, yeah. this. Um, for, again, from, from a maths teacher, I look at, Look at the decisions you, the English teachers or, or people set in the English curriculum and history teachers and so on have yeah. to make over over what gets taught and what gets emphasised. Whereas we don't really as maths teachers, we, we have to teach kids how to add fractions, solve equations and so on and so forth. So I wonder, could you just give us a bit of an overview of, of what powerful knowledge is, perhaps with reference to, to, you know, English or history or whatever. And then is there such a thing as powerful knowledge in maths? Right. So... The idea of powerful knowledge is a is is the sort of conception of a guy called um, Michael Young, who's a, a sociologist of education at the IOE, and and he distinguishes broadly between everyday knowledge, which is sort of useful for getting around in our direct um, environments, um, and then and what he calls powerful knowledge is stuff which enables us to think about things beyond our direct experience to be able to make abstractions and generalizations and and all that all that all of that good stuff and that and that his argument is that school ought to be about giving children systematic access to concepts and ways of thinking that enable them to think about things that they couldn't think about previously the yeah, sorry, David. And again, is is there a concrete example? Right. Okay. So I mean, so I've because you briefed me on this, uh, Craig. So I had a bit of a a think about because I hadn't previously thought about how this might apply to mathematics as such. Um, and and I was one of the things I was thinking about is you know if you take a branch of mathematics like geometry. Now I think that for a lot of children, and certainly I think this was my experience. What you're taught, your school experience is about shape and space and that and, and you learn things like how to measure lengths and how to calculate angles and areas and volumes. But often with kind of no idea what you're doing or why you're doing it. OK, yeah. If you were the powerful content in geometry, I, I think and I'm no, I'm no mathematician is about giving children access to logical thought and types of proof and distinguishing between assumptions and axioms axioms and thinking about deduction and conjecture and all of that sort of stuff, which those allow them to think in completely different ways 
about the sort of the mundane part of maths, which is, you know, how long's that, that, the side of that, of that triangle and what's the air circumference of that circle, which, you know, I'm not saying that it doesn't matter because in a practical sense, it's really important, but it, but it, it's much more powerful if you've got that underpinning ability to think about what's it all for, what do you do with it. And does another? It's really interesting you say this, and um, because again, this is something I've been wrestling for for the yeah. last last few years. This, this kind of, and I, I just sum it up as as when you should teach the why before the how, and when the how should be, be come before the why. Because I, I'm listening to that, and I'm I'm fully agreeing with you. Yeah. But I'm also thinking that yeah. you, it's kind of like the flexible and inflexible knowledge yeah. that you spoke about before. That, that that sometimes that powerful knowledge has kind of almost got to come at the end of the process, right? Once kids have. have played around where had tasted some success with with some things they've got sure. all these separate pieces i know what you, you i know what you mean but i'm not sure if that's true and I, and I say genuinely i'm not sure if it's true and like you i think that's something that i really wrestle with because i think that you know that for 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 a significant minority of children uh, a subject like maths is considered to be boring and you, you probably come across, I don't know if you've ever encountered that, Craig. Oh, yes, many a time. And, and, and I think it's boring because they just see it as a set of procedures. They're just like, oh, I'm endlessly kind of adding things. Um, you know, I'm trying to work out what bloody X is. Why the hell? <laughs> you know, and they're doing, they're going through these empty, meaningless rituals with no idea of the purpose of mathematics. The per- that, that mathematics is a language of logical thought. And, uh, you know, it's a way of thinking about the world. It's about sort of taking patterns and making meaning from them in a way which, you, you know, that, that maths sort of requires far, far more precision than is possible than, than, than you have with everyday language. It's a toolkit for, for abstraction and generalization. And so whilst, whilst I, I, you know, I'm completely signed up on, on, on board with, there's no point getting kids to do problem solving if they don't, if they haven't mastered the kind of underpinning procedures required, the, 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 the knowledge needed to be able to work through those. But I, I do think kind of seducing them with the beauty of a subject can't be reserved for the end. It's, it's interesting. I, again, I mean, I'm inclined to I'm inclined to agree with you. And I think there are lots of circumstances where that's true. But I think that there's a danger that you, yeah. you take that the wrong way and you almost yeah. feel you have to you have to justify everything that you teach by by showing kids where it comes from, how uh-huh. it fits in and so on and so forth. And the problem with that sometimes yeah is explaining why something works and where something comes from is far more complicated than actually doing it, do it actually, you know, carrying out the procedure, answering questions yeah. and so on and so forth. And I've seen too many classes where you've lost the kids before you've even got to the actual teaching of the thing. Right. Whereas if you just flip it around the other way around and say, okay, I'm going to just show you how to do something here. 
I'm not going to tell you why just yet. I'm just going to show you how to do it. You're going to get really good at it, really confident at it. I'm a great believer that, again, reading all the motivation literature, and again, I was influenced by this when I um, when, when I read you one of your earlier books, the um, What If Everything You Knew About Education Was Wrong, how the, the, the line of causation is probably success to, to motivation as opposed to motivation leading to success. So getting kids feeling successful, getting them motivated, getting them confident, and then saying to them, right, that thing we've been doing for the last couple of days the one that you can absolutely nail now let's dig into where that comes from how it fits into the big picture why it works let's look at a proof and so on and so forth as opposed to trying to start with that and i'm not saying that's true for all kind of topics or concepts i really hear you um but but the lived experience of lots and lots of children is is that they can do maths but they find it boring I don't know. I don't know. You know, I think I think that's true of, 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 of some kids, but I think there's a bigger, bigger group of kids yeah. who can't do maths, but claim that they can't do it because it's boring. Oh, well, OK, that's that's that might be true. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to accept that that's possibly true. But OK, so let's take let's take a subject like English, which is one that I can speak with a little bit more uh, surety about that. There are you know, that there are that, that you can you can you can do sort of grammatical writing exercises um, to the point of that somebody can can really nail them, but what that doesn't give them that gives them a bit an ability to do something that gives them a, an ability to kind of you know to, they they've learned a procedure they've learned a set of steps which they can apply, but it doesn't change their ability to think about the world in new and interesting ways, and so. You know, if I if I give you a sort of for instance on this, um, that that one of the kind of one one of the pieces of powerful knowledge that that hopefully children are developing in their study of of a subject like English literature is that at different times and places people think in fundamentally different ways, and this allows them to sort of you know think more empathetically about about people from different times and places. Now, there's a point at which when kids are like reading stories that they they only get that a very at a very very superficial level and you know i remember once uh some time ago teaching romeo and juliet and um and there's a bit in romeo and juliet where uh romeo is banished from verona the city where the the action set and he has to he has to go to another city and and he and he, he's devastating and he's crying and he's carrying on and um and all the rest of it and the priest in it friar lawrence sort of get you know basically sells him to sort of man up and stop being such a such a, a sissy about it and i remember a lad in my class that i was teaching going yeah you know why is he carrying on like that if i was kicked out of western i'd just go and live with my nan in chippenham <laughs> and and he he fundamentally was unable to see because he didn't he didn't have this underpinning knowledge that sort of living in a different city in an era where there was no communication where travel was dangerous where every single person you've ever met and or ever you know is is in that one place and being ripped away from all of that is something that we can't really you know that unless if we've only got our everyday experience to go from that we can't we can't get at that we can't we can't think about that in a meaningful way so i'm not you know i have to be honest i'm not sure what that what that similar kind of experience might be like in maths but if i just teach kids to say 
What are we meant to think about the character? How do we write about the character? How do we use evidence to sort of support our view of a character of a character and never get them thinking, hang on a second. In the past, people were different. Yes. And I failed to open up the subject. That's interesting. Well, you've set me a challenge there, David. I'm going to contemplate that. And I always do a takeaway at the end of these podcasts. And that's what I'm going to reflect right. on. I'm going to, I'm going to think hard about powerful knowledge in mathematics. Okay, David, I want to turn our attention now to talking about schools and what schools actually can do to, to, to influence this. But I, I want to start with a big question. And that is, what is the purpose of schools? Is it really as simple as to try and make children cleverer? Well, I, I think that's a, I think that's a useful way of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, in a, so the answer to that is yes and no. Um, so yeah, I think if that's our kind of acid test and benchmark, is this, is this likely to make children cleverer? Then that's very, very useful. Is it as simple as that? Well, probably not. I think that, um, I like the, you know, another answer I like about the purpose of schools is that schools are a technological invention that we have come up with in order to teach stuff that children are unlikely to pick up from their environments. And this goes back to Geary's biologically primary and secondary distinction. Is, is that right? Uh, well, I think that's a helpful way of, of thinking about that. But it, but it's, but I think that that's an observation that's rooted in far more than just, uh, than just, you know, educational evolutionary biology. And psychology okay. i think i think that one of the most interesting things you know as well as all of that um is thinking you know about the development of schools at different parts in of the world and where they where schools cropped up and where they became uh, more prevalent and there's a strong link between the development of schools and um, having abstract knowledge culturally acquired knowledge to teach and I think that one of my favorite sort of findings from the research that I was doing for the book was the fact that our, the oldest um, form of writing that we know about is um, cuneiform, the language, the written language of ancient Sumeria. Um, and, and it's no accident, I'm sure, that ancient Sumeria is where we get the very first archaeological evidence of schools. <laughs> so, and they existed to teach people cuneiform. And uh, and because, you know, there was, a, am sure, an understanding that kids weren't going to just pick this up. And if we want children to be able to speak, to write, to scribe, uh, we need to systematically teach them to do it. And there are some lovely, because obviously they were writing on stone, that there are some lovely surviving um, tablets with teachers sort of moaning about the fecklessness of young people these <laughs> kids sort of banging on about how boring their teachers are and it was ever thus and i think that's a, a sort of an important way of thinking about it so so i you know I, I make that point because you know i've come across certainly people who are sort of quite dismissive of um evolutionary psychology saying it's just so stories and all that sort of thing um and 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 you know Doing that is, I can see the temptation, I can see why it's attractive to do that, but I think that with all of this stuff, you have to, you have to get away from that and go, well, can we, can we actually use it to make anything, any sort of meaningful statements about the world? Does it allow us to think in ways which are sort of more or less helpful? And I think that the, the geary distinction between what's biologically primary and secondary, absolutely, 
helps us to think better about about those sorts of questions. Got it. So, now, now yeah. the the, um, the subtitle of your book is um, yeah. a manifesto for closing the advantage gap. And you also say, and I found this very interesting, in, in the bit about schools, you say too many approaches in education disproportionately benefit children with higher fluid intelligence and those from advantaged socioeconomic backgrounds. I wondered, what are some examples of this? What, what are schools doing wrong to, to not close this advantage gap? Um, I think some of the things that you could be doing, and this isn't sort of finger wagging on, on my part, but I think one of the the... the the things that you come across a lot in, in all sorts of areas in the, in the world is people sort of trying to sort of answer the question of how do we how do we prepare children for an uncertain future? Um, how do we how do we get them to be better at solving problems and more creative? And and so that one of the answers to those questions has been let's try to design a curriculum about around those kinds of generic skills where we teach problem solving and we teach collaboration and we teach uh, critical thinking and, and creativity and all that, all of that great stuff. And, and I think that because the ability to think as we were kind of, we, we sort of glanced on earlier is impossible to separate from the stuff that's in your head. And we agreed that that was the case earlier, that you can't, you know, nobody, no matter how bright they think they are, can think about something that they've never heard of before. You know, that's that's just not possible. You can think, what have I never heard of? But you can't think of, you literally can't think of something that you've got no awareness of. Yes. So, and so the same is true of, um, you know, problem solving. You can't solve a problem that you've got no awareness of. You can only solve a problem that you've got some awareness of. And so the more awareness you've got of a problem, the more likely you are to have a useful attempt at solving it. I would have, you know, that seems to me self-evident. And that's, I think, true for all of these things that we see as these generic skills, that they're, they're no doubt really, really important, but they, they probably can't, well, they I can't imagine a way in which they could be taught meaningfully and divorced from some kind of content. Now, if you if you don't think carefully about the content, about the quality and quantity of the stuff that you're going to get children to learn about, then and you just do it on any old stuff, then the children who have a higher fluid intelligence, those children who have quicker processing, they're going to be advantaged over the people who don't have that biological lottery ticket and the children who are from more privileged backgrounds are more likely to encounter the sort of use useful powerful concepts that uh, are, are so crucial to those kinds of generic skills and that children are for, who are from less privileged backgrounds are less likely to have that kind of access and you end up creating something i think which is really inequitous got it got it um, can I just ask David? Because I've I've always wondered this, and this you're my perfect person to ask for this. What what's the kind of English equivalent of kind of teaching by problem solving? So in maths, I could imagine it like we have inquiry based methods of teaching where kind of students are confronted with problems they can't solve, and they almost kind of they try different techniques, they learn from each other, they request the teacher over, and all this kind of stuff. What what what's the English equivalent of that? Well. Um... 
I'm not sure that the equivalent. I think in English, the equivalent of that is, is is kind of unusual and fairly extreme, and you don't see very often. I think what's much more prevalent in English classrooms is having teachers try to teach uh, things that that for them, for English teachers, are, are, I think that are, are obvious skills, things like the skill of inference or the skill of analysis, and so they they. Because the skill is what's considered to be important, it doesn't really matter what it is that you're making an inference about or what it is that you're analysing. So you can just show kids any old stuff uh, and then you can demonstrate to them how to make an, an inference, you know, read between the lines, what it what you know, you it says that, but what do you think it actually means? And and you know, my observation is that nobody is is capable of making an inference about something that they don't know anything about. Yes. The, so, inf- so in that way, inference, although it's a thing, it isn't a skill in that it doesn't improve through practice. You can't do loads of, inf- you know, you can't make loads of inferences about easy stuff and then expect to make an inference about something which is beyond your experience. Yes. So, and, and the same is true of, you know, a lot of things within a subject like English, which, which is widely considered to be skills based. So you have an awful lot of curriculum time focused on, right, let's read this. Let's make an, let's try and analyze what this word means in this passage. Right. You've successfully analyzed what that word is doing there. Now you can analyze. And, and that's not true because although you have experienced analyzing the, the functional use of a word, it doesn't at all predict that you'll be able to do that for a word that you've, that you've no idea what it means. Got it. That, that is, that is similar to maths in a lot of ways. That's, that's, that's a classic way of privileging kids who are already privileged. Because if you do that, the people who succeed are the ones that probably would succeed or more likely to succeed, even if you weren't there. And, yes. And I think that what happens is because because just because some children inevitably do all right in our classes, that it's very easy to convince ourselves that that must be to do with us. But I, I, I'm fairly sure that um, a lot of children succeed despite what happens in their classrooms. And, no. and then as teachers, we're subject to survivorship bias where we go, you know, oh, well, you know, let's look at all the different things that sort of you know, characterize that success. And, and what we don't do is look at the children that didn't succeed and think meaningfully about what they didn't have. Got it. Now, th- this might be the most stupid question that I've asked yet. Um, and uh, apologies for, for returning to this, but just just <laughs> let me see if I've got my head around this, because this, this was the, the, the final thing that was confusing me. So we, we talked earlier on about when kids are uh, older, the effect of parenting yeah. essentially reduces to zero. And yet here we've got students kind of being privileged from from higher socioeconomic backgrounds. Is, th- is there a contradiction there? Because that, that almost seems like the parents are having an influence, you know, providing advantages to kids by giving them this extra background knowledge by the cultural experiences they have at home and so on, which are then feeding into schools. Is that a contradiction to what we talked about before or, or is it something different? Yeah, I mean, this, so, so I think this is the, this is the important thing for, that, that where there's often some confusion because what, what people, when I say and when the research indicates that parenting doesn't account for the differences between people, say, reach adulthood, what what people sometimes hear in their heads is that parenting doesn't matter. Yes. Now, obviously, 
it matters a great deal. And so if you know something, if you, I don't know, if you've been to the British Museum and you've looked at the Elgin marbles and you've got, and you kind of know what they're like, you've kind of stood in the same room as them, that, that doesn't, that, that doesn't magically disappear from your heads when you reach adulthood, that, that experience. But what, what, what does seem to be true is that attempts to change how children uh, think about the world, what their personalities are like, their their cognitive ability, that doesn't that seems to be particularly resistant to parental influences over time. So even though you might have had all sorts of great experiences, and those experiences will no doubt make some difference to your school performance. Um, the 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 differences between individuals start to be much more accounted for by factors other than shared environments as children become adults. Got it. Fantastic. Right. Well, I want I want to turn now before we kind of start wrapping up things to to the kind of big things that schools and individual teachers can do that that will make a difference. To will right. to, to use your phrase, will will make kids cleverer. And I love this because it's it's kind of areas we've touched upon in the podcast then uh, over the last few years. But you had quite a different take on a number of those. So so the first was deliberate practice. Now, what's your take on deliberate practice, David? Because I, I'm a big fan. I love Peak. I love uh, Andreas Ericsson's work. Have you, can, can it be utilised in school effectively? And if so, how, how can teachers in school kind of harness the power of deliberate practice? Well, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, that, that Ericsson in Peak did us all a favour by saying, no, actually, deliberate practice only applies in very, very specific circumstances. And, and he came up and he kind of repackaged it as purposeful practice in, in, for a context like school. And I think that that's a, so trying to so drawing a line between purposeful practice and deliberate practice is useful. It's like a softer option, but it's the only option that we can really get any traction with where we don't have that same systematic moving from expert to, to, to from novice to expert that exists in, in sport and music and things like that. So, uh, so absolutely we can, we can harness the power of purposeful practice and sort of, you know, what, what are we trying to get better at? Are we getting feedback on how good that we're doing, how, how well we're doing it? And all of those sorts of things are things which are, uh, teachers have always done. Um, but I think we can be more mindful of it. I think the bit that, um, you know, and I think you were alluding to this earlier when you were talking about times tables and number bonds and things like that. I think that that what we what we can and maybe should think about is what are the things that we can practice to the point of automatization? What what are the things that we can practice to the point where we no longer have to think about them? They just be, they can operate in the background and allow us to be able to think about more complex things in the foreground. Yes. Yeah. I agree. And I'm of the same mind with deliberate practice. For me, one of the kind of big insights was this, this breaking down of a complex skill that that really that that really kind of, you know, sang aloud to me when I was reading the book, thinking that's something that I didn't do enough early on as a teacher. I, I would teach adding fractions as if it was a single process where because it, it was to me as a, as a relative expert, but it wasn't to my kids. So I think that for me was certainly something practical. I took from deliberate practice, kind of break it down into its finer components, hammer each one, giving feedback and so on, and then, and then bundle it back together. Would that be would you agree with that? Yeah, essentially, yeah. 
Yeah, fantastic. The um, the other one I wanted to talk to you about now, again, it's it's been kicking off of late. Um, a cognitive load theory. So I'm I'm a massive fan of, of of cognitive load theory, but we've had a, we've had well a couple of fairly high, high profile guests on on this podcast in recent months, um, arguing against cognitive load theory. And I don't know if you've seen on Twitter, there's there's almost been a kind of bit of a backlash against it, and that that always happens when something becomes popular and, and prominent. But but the kind of key argument against it, for me anyway, seems to be that there are no actual practical implications it doesn't actually tell teachers how to help children learn more do you, do you agree with that i well honestly craig i i don't understand how anyone could say that and 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 claim to have to know anything about how children learn and i just seems it just seems an absurd statement <laughs> I, I, and I don't mean that in a horribly dismissive way. I, I, it genuinely makes no sense to me. I don't know if you could try and explain or play devil's advocate here and sort of. Try I can try. To... Yeah, I can try. I guess. Um, I guess one thing will be the, the contention that that learning is a change in long term memory. I think for a lot of people, they would ask, "What well, what does that mean? Like, how do I know that something's changed in long term memory? What what does that look like? I think I think that will That's be cognitive load theory." But it would be, it would be, it would be Kirshner would be, be saying it, right? Like it, it, it would be. Yeah, he would be saying that that would be, you know, a way to think about, you know, whether, whether, you know, we're valuing performance over learning and, you know, does, does, does somebody still know something later or do they just know it in the here and now? And I think that's, that for me, that's probably one of the most fundamental things that changed my, the way I thought about, um, education. The, I, I genuinely thought, um, without having really interrogated very much, that if if children's performance within a lesson was impressive, then that was the that was that was what I was meant to be achieving, and 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 I'd never sort of asked myself the question, what if they can't do it later? Yeah, I, I agree. That was a, it was a, a game changer for me that as well. So um, that's useful, but that but that isn't cognitive load theory. That's uh, that's not what the theory is. Okay, let, let me give you let me give you another one then. What teachers say to me sometimes? Well, it, it's it's just obvious. It, it's just common sense. It's just what kind of good teachers do. I, I don't need a theory to tell me that um, that there shouldn't be a lot of distractions for kids, or that I, I shouldn't kind of put text on the screen and talk at the same time. It's it's, it's just obvious. What do you say to that? If, I mean, if it is obvious, why are so many people doing the wrong things? And 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 it might they might be absolutely right that some people are instinctively got it right but uh, i think that often what we know about what we kind of what seems to be the case about how children learn is often by quite counterintuitive and uh, um, typically people are doing things which are actively unhelpful but believing them to be helpful i mean i, did, I recently did a, a, a seminar with um uh, the uh, the bbc talking to the the people who make bite-sized videos and I was talking to them about cognitive load theory and they were like, oh, my God, that means all our content is shit. <laughs> but, oh, I can't possibly comment on that. But, you know, and they were like, no, but we didn't know that. And so they are there now thinking, should we should we sort of do something different? And, and because it wasn't obvious. So saying it's obvious to me um, is, is a to me is a sort of incredibly and weirdly arrogant thing to say. You know, I don't need this. Therefore, nobody else does either. Um, just seems bizarre. Yeah. So the, the way I think cognitive load theory is incredibly helpful is is thinking about it as, you know, what are the components about what's going on? So the cognitive load is created by the demands of a task. 
and it's mediated by the resources that are available to cope with those demands. So of practical importance and use for teachers is to think, right, what can you change about task demand? And can you change something about the quality of the task? Can you can you make this a slightly simplified version that, ch that, that children have a go at before going to a more complex one? And can you think about quantity? Can you get people doing a bit less of things? And I think that's that's absolutely not intuitive. And, you know, in a subject like my subject, English, that what we typically have are teachers think believing that because children have to write extended essays uh, in order to do well at a GCSE, that the best way to prepare them for doing those extended essays is to get them to write at length from year seven onwards. Uh, and that's that's just not true. Um, and so cognitive load theory is a really useful way of saying, right, well, look, because you're asking them to, to write several paragraphs, that there's so much for them to think of that quality is deteriorating over the length of writing that they're doing. And so what they're what they're internalizing, what they're learning is a lot of what they what a lot of what they've written, a lot of this essay is crap and they're getting better at writing crap essays. <laughs> so nobody's you know, to nobody's benefit. So I think, you know, cognitive load theory is kind of, you know, maybe maybe it's not the link here hasn't sort of been made explicit, but it's exactly the principle that's in, that's applying to something like interval training and physical exercise. So I I re I've recently been doing um, couch to not couch to 5K, the NHS app with one of my daughters. And um, essentially the idea is that you're able to run for five kilometers after nine weeks of practice but the first time you go out for a run you end up running for about three minutes over half an hour um and and so it's reducing the load the physical load um but importantly what it's doing is that you have successfully completed day one of training you've got a bit of faith that you can successfully complete day two of training and that you're making some sort of progress. But if that first if that first run was right, you bugger, run for 30 minutes. <laughs> what I'd have learned was oh, I can't do it. I might as well just pack up now. And yeah. and that that's children's lived experience in school with people not understanding how cognitive load theory can it can lead to children having internalizing a schema of success. So that's one area, the idea of task demanding, being able to think about the quantity and the quality involved in the task itself, and then thinking about the resources that are available. Now, the ideal state for the resources to be available is that they're available internally, that they're stored in your long-term memory, and that whenever you have to do a complex test, you've got everything you need at your mental fingertips. But the reality is inevitably children haven't learned everything they need to know because that's why they're at school so you have to give them external resources which reduce the cognitive load of the task that they're doing now one of the one of the things that's really kind of useful and important to tell teachers is that when you have these external resources having them available externally mitigates against them being internalized and so that anything that's too easily available externally, why would you bother going to the trouble of trying to internalize it? And so looking at that tension between resources that are, that are internal and external is another, I think, absolutely crucial part of the theory. And 
And I think that, you know, that, that saying that isn't useful for teachers. It's, I, I just, I, I don't know how you can, you can make, make a statement like that and, and, and expect anyone to take you seriously. I really don't. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one, and again, I struggle here because I I agree. I'm I'm a I'm a huge fan. I've I've read absolutely everything I could. It's it's literally changed my lessons from day one. It changed my lessons when when I'm lucky enough to work with teachers. It always seems to go down well. The feedback in terms of what when they went back to the classroom is, yeah, it's it's almost like a no brainer. Like it it's just tiny little tweaks to to task design and presentation and so on and so forth but i just i am aware that there is yeah there's there's this kind of backlash and i'm just i'm just trying to get to the bottom of it myself but yeah that 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 makes that makes perfect sense um i mean i you know i genuinely think it it changes the way people think about classroom practice and it makes them more mindful of things which they're otherwise tend to be unmindful of and i think that that you know one of the things at the heart of this is that's crucial is that if you are a teacher of a topic, you are likely to be a relative expert and that what's likely to be most the most effective way for you to learn more about your subject is least likely to be effective for the students that you're teaching. Yes. So that that counterintuitive truth at the heart of that is something that, you know, you communicate that to teachers and they're like, oh, oh OK, right. So. You know, and, and, and instead say, think about things that you're not very good at. I mean, what, so, you know, like I recently had the experience of trying to make a souffle. <laughs> and, and you know, I don't know if you've ever tried to make a souffle, but it's a complex task. It's high, high demand, uh, high cognitive load uh, created by the demand of the task. And the resources that I had available were the, the cook, the recipe in the cookbook. I didn't really have much internal apart from sort of some basic cooking skills. And, and what I, where I came unstuck was like halfway through the recipe, there was a, one of the procedures said something along the lines of beat the mixture until the consistency is just right. Yes. What's that? <laughs> had I had somebody standing next to me going, that's just right. Then I internalized that knowledge. That sort of tacit knowledge is something that is almost impossible to communicate explicitly. You have to have someone going, that's what I mean. You're, you're right. Yeah. And I, th- I think you've, you've, you've hit on something dead important there, David, that I think we, we all suffer from cursive knowledge within our own subjects. So, again, we find it hard to or I certainly find it hard to, to kind of anticipate and, and empathize with the difficulties that, that how difficult students will find tasks. And it's only whenever we're kind of out of our comfort zone with you and your cooking there or recently my wife and I have been doing antenatal classes <laughs> and I'm in there and I don't have a bloody clue what's going on because they're showing me they're showing me how to feed the baby and then do the nap but it's all just done in one go and yeah. I, I, i'm just I'm, I'm at completely out my depth and it's been, exactly and it's, it's only whenever you are in that position of a novice learner feeling helpless that i think you start to appreciate the power of the principles of cognitive load theory if that makes sense i think that's what's really interesting about being a teacher because as a teacher you are a, at least a relative expert but every human being is also a novice mm. lots of stuff yeah uh, absolutely and, and trying to sort of and I, you know, I do think you know that, that that as you become more experienced in teaching your subject, you do build up that 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 increased ability to sort of predict misconceptions and yes. go, it's always go wrong here. So I need to really go slowly. You know, like as a maths teacher, you can kind of absolutely predict that there are going to be kids that just don't get negative numbers. Yes. 
And so you're just going to have to go slowly and carefully if you want to multiply them. And, um, and, and, you know, and that's, I'm sure, true for every single subject that's out there. And it's, and I think what's difficult is because we've, we've done this post hoc assembly thing of turning the things that we're experts into skills. We think in terms of skills and we lose the ability to see that they are slowly and patiently acquired and accumulated through all of those tiny components of knowledge that make that, that procedure that we've practiced to the point of invisibility. Absolutely, absolutely. And another thing you say in, in this section that's kind of about about what schools practically can do to make kids cleverer is a fascinating quote, David. You say there's something of a vogue for failure at the moment. Now, I, I wonder what you mean by that. And is, is there a danger? Is, is there a, a, a potential conflict between kind of cognitive load theory and, and then misapplying Bjork's desirable difficulties, making things difficult for kids too soon? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that, you know, that, that there's a sort of belief that, um, you know, we learn something, you know, learning, we all learn through failure. And that if you fail at things, then, you know, you, that coping with that experience in some way better prepares you for something else. And, and I think actually failure just, you know, begets further failure that, that if you've struggled and, and failed at something, then you just learn your rubbish at it. And it takes, you know, it's a fairly rare individual that's prepared to persevere in that circumstance. And I think that the, the, <coughs> the thing which we ought to be doing with the idea of desirable difficulties is, is thinking carefully about what they might be in terms of, you know, the, 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 the purpose of them. And the, the definition I've come up with for myself is that a difficulty is desirable if it in, invokes a certain amount of struggle, but it results in success. And if it doesn't result in success, it is undesirable. And I think that's that's a really useful acid test. So, you know, the you know the one of the, the classic sort of things that you, I've, I often see in schools is like kids being asked questions by the teacher, and and it's clear they don't know what the answer is, and the teacher sort of you know, eventually we'll get to the point where they go, right, okay, um, oh, you, here's the answer. You just didn't know that. And what's the, what the child's, uh, part of what the child's learning in that is that they're just a bit rubbish at the thing. And, and a, a desirable difficulty would, that would be if they, if you know as a teacher that they have encountered the answer, that there's a really high chance that they do actually know it, that you carry on getting them to sort of generate possibilities by, by decrease decreasing the cognitive load so you know for instance if i was sort of asking somebody if i was trying to you know i'm going to predict here that you know the capital city of france and i say craig what is the capital city of france and you go oh bugger i can't remember and i say well it begins with p and you're like oh p is it perpignan no as <laughs> long it begins with p it's five letters long and it ends in s and i carry on doing you know that your attempts to retrieve and your attempts to kind of dredge up, although they're beginning progressively less difficult, the, the fact that there's some difficulty, I'm not just saying, Craig, it's bloody Paris, <laughs> is resulting in, in increasing your storage strength. And so I think that, you know, for when I, with the, the bit with Bjork's sort of theories that I think is, is 
not well enough understood in some of the people that I've spoken to. It's not really kind of getting the 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 conflict between retrieval strength and storage strength. You know, retrieval strength being the ability to remember something at this moment, and storage strength, your ability to remember it tomorrow. And the 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 fact that not being able to remember something right now and having to think about it actually increases your likelihood of remembering it tomorrow. Yes. I'll I'll tell you the bit that I struggle with there is that it's, it's got to be in there in the first place, right? Like that's, that's the big one, isn't it? Cause I think if you, if you kind of rush through the initial teaching phase, whatever you want, whatever you want to call it with the, the worked example or the practice or whatever, if it's not in there, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what happens or how you space, how you interleave, all that kind of thing. It's all wasted. If that almost kind of initial acquisition of that knowledge hasn't been successful, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, what's, and what's really tricky for teachers is that if you just say, to kids can you remember what we did last lesson they'll say yeah <laughs> but then if you say what did we do last lesson they go i don't know <laughs> and, and it's like we they think they know things that they don't actually I mean, we all think we know things we don't really know and it's not until somebody actually puts us on the spot that it becomes evident that we don't know it yes what can I ask? What what you make? So I know you, you touch upon this in the book. Um, Joe Bowler is obviously a, a prominent mathematician, um, maths educator, um, and and she has this thing where she she's very pro mistakes, and she has this that kind of mistakes make the brain grow, and we should be encouraging them and, and, and encourage kids to make mistakes and so on. Now I've always had a bit of an issue with that. One in terms of I don't know enough about the science to know whether that's true, but also I think there's a danger of kind of over celebrating mistakes almost like i think i don't know if this is going to make sense but i don't want kids to see that i'm thrilled that they've made a mistake because it almost feels kind of almost patronizing in a way and it's almost kind of a skewed incentive i want to celebrate when they've done got something right and i don't want them to be fearful of sharing a mistake because we you know we're all going to learn from it as, as as a class but it just feels a little bit wrong to me to I, I think there's almost a danger that we're kind of encouraging kids to make mistakes because we feel they're so important to learning. And I'm not entirely convinced they are. Well, what's, what's your view? Well, I think it's I think as is often the case, it's it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, I think that the value of making a mistake lies, you know, depends upon the beliefs that you have about the thing that you're mistaken about. So um, if I like, if I say to you now, uh, what what colour piece of fabric might you use to really irritate a bull? <laughs> what what's the answer that springs to mind? Uh, red. Right, and that's the wrong answer because bulls can't see the colour red. They can only see in, yeah, exactly. They can't even perceive red. What irritates them isn't the colour of the flag, it's the movement and the sort of, you know, the matador strutting around and, and all the rest of it. The colours irrelevant. I think, I think I'm right in saying that they can only see yellow and blue or, or something like that. I might, I might be wrong on the details there. But now the fact that I've pointed that out to you, I've, I've, I've now made you aware of that mistake. My prediction is that you're going to go to your grave knowing that bulls and not bothered by the colour red. You're right. I'm going to tell my wife as soon as she comes through yeah. the door as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so what you've just experienced is the hyper-correction effect. 
Yes. Which essentially is that the more confident you are in a in an incorrect answer, having that the, having the fact that it's incorrect pointed out to you, the more likely you are to to now learn the correct answer. Yes. And I think so. So there are certain sorts of things for which that's true. But I think that, you know, if I said to you, I don't know, like what's what's five times five? And you said it's 30. And I said, no, it's not. It's 25. You probably don't have strong beliefs about 30. It was just a mistake. And so you're very unlikely, I think, through that process to actually get that kind of effect, that kind of benefit. Yes, and I guess as well, if I literally, if you ask me something I literally had no idea about, oh, yeah, yeah. No. yeah, I wouldn't have that confidence. It's, it's kind of the confidence that fuels the power of the hypercorrection effect. And it's almost. the crucial bit is having the mistake pointed out unambiguously as wrong. Yes. And, and I think that often, you know, often what happens, and maybe less so in a subject like maths, but often what happens is kids are told, well, that's a really good idea. Yeah, it isn't a good idea. It's a it's 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 not a good idea at all. It's an understandable mistake, but it's a bad idea. <laughs> um, you know, and and it's not even original a lot of the time. Like everybody makes that mistake. It's a it, let's not make that again. Let's be really really clear that that's the wrong thing to think. You know that um, a play that's often taught in English literature courses is J. B. Priestley's play in Inspectacles. Which is you know, this? It's it takes the format of a whodunit, and uh, and it, and it's a commentary on social justice. And the inspector here is a sort of uh, the the projection of the of the author's presence into the play to comment on the fecklessness of the characters' values and this sort of thing. But the, uh, one of the common mistakes that children often make when they read that play, when they don't really know enough, is they go, "Oh, I think the inspector did it." And and that, you know, the only way you could arrive at that is to have a fundamental failure of understanding about what's being what's attempted to be communicated within the play. So I started to predict because I taught it a few times that this came up again and again and again. And so I would I would absolutely regularly right from the very beginning of teaching say, remember, the inspector didn't do it. That some you might be tempted to think the inspector did it, but he didn't. That would be wrong, and you need to absolutely have that front and centre. And when I ask you a question, if your answer is you think that that's wrong, remember that's wrong. That you know don't don't think that's a boring mistake. I've predicted that you're going to make it. Thousands of other people have made it. Don't you make it too? There's nothing interesting about that mistake. And I think that that's important to have that kind of conversation. That's interesting. That that's also something I'm going to be thinking about hard after this interview. Where yeah, the the kind of equivalent of that in mathematics, the the boring mistake. I like that. That's good. Um, just just before we finish, David, before yeah. I hand over to you for some reflections, I just just I often ask this when I'm when I'm lucky enough to read a book. Just yeah. um take takeaways. So if if a teacher's reading this book, or a school leader, or a policymaker, or a parent, is there anything in particular you would like each of those kind of groups of people to to take away from your book? What what about an individual teacher first? Okay, so. I think for teachers, I mean, the thing that I'd like them to take away is that by trying to affect the quality and quantity of what children know, we can absolutely not only make a difference to their intelligence, whatever that is, 
but we can also you know if it's, it, we can also make a difference to their to the all sorts of other positive outcomes in their life we can end up the, 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 as a result of that in real terms they'll be happier healthier live longer and all that other stuff and so to really you know to really get to grips with thinking about the, the the concepts and the ideas and the and the, the 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 things that children learn whilst in school um that's that i think is the you know the most important part of that and and that's where i think it's it's absolutely crucial that you get away from the idea of iq as being in any way kind of meaningful like one of the big um criticisms about the idea that you can <clears throat> make children cleverer that you can sort of affect intelligence was was the sort of thesis of um the murray and hernstein book the, the bell curve um which essentially said you know that you've got this normal distribution and and you you know you're never going to address that there's always going to be the same distance between you know the people at the the left hand side of the curve and the people at the right hand side of the curve and you know that nothing nothing that we can do can act, can 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 change that and and I think that that's that's a for me that's a the the failure there is being hung up about about the abstraction of an IQ score and instead I think it's far more valuable and useful to get away from the the number and so, and go back to the idea of what does what does IQ represent and what I'm arguing throughout the book is that it, it represents at least in part and the only bit really that we can change as teachers. It represents the quality and quantity of what children know, and that the 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 more the quantity, the more the greater the quality, the greater children's ability to think and operate in the world. And so, when you when you think like that, and I think you know, if you were to if you were to as a sort of an exercise, if you were to substitute uh, that knowledge for a for a cash amount, and you said, okay, so let's imagine that we gave every individual in the country a thousand pounds the the very richest people that's going to make absolutely no practical difference to but for the very poorest people that could be life-changing mm. now if we thought of knowledge in that way and we gave everybody more that the most privileged people aren't going to really notice they're going to be fine anyway but it might make a massive difference to the people who have least and i think that that's that that kind of thinking is is perhaps you know what I'd like teachers to take away. Like if they buy that argument, and that's the the persuasion that I'm trying to, you know, the the, the persuasion job that I'm trying to do in the book. That that if they buy that argument, that I've presented them with some ideas about how they can do that. That's superb. I, I love that idea of the the hundred pound. That really brought it home to me. I, I like that. What what about a school leader, David? Anything that you would like them to take away from it? Anything practical they could do as a result of reading your book? Well, I think one of the most practical things for school leaders and, you know, and, and policymakers is, is the idea is to, is to think about schools in terms of opportunity cost. So, you know, that whatever you do in school, you know, is, is probably, you know, is a nice thing probably, and, and, but it's, but maybe it's less good than something else. And so not only just thinking about opportunity cost, but thinking about the idea of the most privileged children are going to get the least from the school experience, the potential, or, you know, but, or, or that's the potential and the, the least privileged have the most to gain. And if you're not thinking carefully about the, about what you're doing within the school system, 
then what tends to happen is that we sort of systematically bias everything in favour of the most privileged. And so thinking about opportunity costs and thinking, all right, that's what we could do. Yes, it might feel great. It might be really good. But what if we did this instead? How would that affect the least privileged children within the system? And maybe we could reverse some of that systematic bias. I like it. And, and final takeaway, well, what about a parent? Is, is there anything aside from the things we've talked about that yeah. you would like a parent to take away from it? It all seemed like bad news, hasn't it? It has a little, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking putting the child up for adoption when they're born, because I don't know what I can do for them. Well, that won't make any difference. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, that's true. Um, so so <laughs> I, I think, though, what you, the reason a lot of kind of attempts to try and make, to raise IQ, to raise intelligence, have sort of been failures is that people have said you know we've put children from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds into you know programs like sure start head start and they've had this sort of cognitively enhancing experience and then you know 10 years later uh, it's washed out and they're back to normal and i think that, that it would be really really useful for not just for parents but particularly for parents to be able to think about intelligence and children's cognitive ability as being broadly similar to their physical health and so you know it, it makes complete sense to us as a as, as people to say right you know if i if i you know if i go on a diet and i have and i exercise i'm likely to be healthier as a result of that and then if i do that for a you know a bit but then i quit and then i start eating donuts for a few months then most people, it's not a surprise for most people that they that they become unhealthier as a result of giving up the exercise and the good nutrition. And I think that the, the thing which is most likely perhaps to sort of make a difference is trying to cultivate habits of mind which make us, which make, which, which kind of bias us towards cognitively healthy habitats. Um, so, you know, if you're peer group is full of people who are engaging and interesting and know lots about the world and sort of discuss current affairs that's going to have an effect on on you in the same way as if everyone's just talking about what they saw on netflix last night that's also going to have an effect on you your environment matters and it matters all the time and if you can if you can try and change your defaults so you're much more likely to have a default environment, which is one where you're doing interesting things and thinking interesting thoughts, that's more likely to get children into a sort of situation where they're, they, they're going to have, be having these cognitive benefits throughout their lives. It's, it's by no means a given, but that's, that's where I try and act in the world. Got it. Superb. Um, just before I hand over to you for your, your big three, just a couple of reflections to, to end, David. I wonder, out of all the research that you've read over the years, is, is the one piece that, that springs to mind that's kind of significantly influenced your approach to, to thinking about education, thinking about teaching in schools in general? Um, I, I think, that for me, the greatest watershed moment was when I came across Robert Bjork talking about the difference between performance and learning. And, and as I said earlier in the interview that I hadn't, I hadn't ever thought about that. And, um, and, and I've, I've watched him sort of give this little talk on a video and it, it just absolutely floored me and made me reappraise everything that I was doing in the classroom. And, um, a lot of that has been summed up in, in a piece of research by 
uh, Nick Soderstrom and, and uh, Bob York uh, called Learning Versus Performance, an integrative review. And that's available as a PDF on the Internet. Maybe we could put a link in the, uh, in the podcast somewhere. So I think that's a really good thing to have a look at. And I think, you know, that understanding that distinction between performance and learning is, is a, is, is a fundamental way to improve your practice as a teacher. I, I could, could not agree more. It was a game changer for me. And, and that paper is, is, is such a readable paper as well. So, yeah, I'll definitely put a link to that, David. And um, so, second uh, reflection. Is there an example of something important that you've changed your mind about? Well, um, I mean, there's loads. I change my mind all the time. Um, and, and it really kind of irritates me when people go, oh, you know, you changed your mind. That sort of shows that there's some sort of lack of intellectual rigor. Um you know, you get new information, you should bloody well change your mind. And <laughs> if you don't do that, there's something really wrong with you. Um, so, so, you know, I, yeah, I think there's, you know, the, I think, and you know, you're in this position now of about to be a father, um, that one of the sort of the sort of heuristics that I started using once I had, um, my own children is to think of what I was doing in the classroom and go, would I be happy if this is what my kids were having in their classroom? And uh, and that's something where that really helped me to think, God, actually, this would be rubbish. I don't want them to have this. So if it's not good enough for my kids, it probably isn't good enough for anybody's. I like it. That's a good way of thinking. I like that. And final question from me, David. Um, what do you wish you'd known when you first started out in your career that you know now? I, I wish I had known that there was a debate about the best way to educate children. I didn't know that there were two broadly... Um, opposing philosophical camps and I just thought there was only one right answer um, and to, to, to think anything else was in some somehow anathema and I wish I'd known that there were that there were you know there was a, a, an old debate that had been around for a long long time that's a great answer. Fantastic. Well, final thing, David, is to hand over to your big three, and I'll put links to all these in the show notes. So what three either websites or blog posts would you recommend our listeners check out? Um, okay, so I, uh, it's really it's really hard. Uh, I don't know if other people have uh, expressed this. And I was thinking hard about the sort of blogs I read regularly. Um, I think, and I'm sure you must have had other um, interviewees have suggested this, but I really think uh, Greg Ashman's blog, um, Filling the Pale, um, is, is, a, is a sort of extraordinarily uh, vast resource. I mean, the, the man seems to post every day uh, and has an insatiable appetite, appetite for sort of critical thinking about education. And, and uh, you know, I've learned a lot from him and, and he's you know, been on similar journeys to me um so i'd recommend that uh blog uh, i'd also i'm going to recommend um three star learning experiences paul kirshner's blog that he um that he writes with um oh i can't remember her name that's how awful um miriam i think it is narjam i think that's right i might be wrong um that's you know that's uh he's a he's a very well Known prominent researcher who's who's talk who's 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 very good at sort of expressing and sort of translating um, some quite abstract ideas into into ways which at least I understand. So maybe other people will as well. And I, and I think my third recommendation is going to be is one which is less about education um, 
and it, I think it's the 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 blog on the internet which I l- learn most from, and often stuff that really really surprises me. And it's Slate Star Codex. Um, oh. it, Will you say that say that one one more time? I've not heard of this one. Slate Star Codex. Right. And uh, it's it's the guy who writes it is um, is a doctor. And um, but he's a you know, he's a he's just a, a thinker and a, and a skeptic. And he, he takes uh, he, he looks at he looks at sort of research and ideas from all across the realm of ideas and 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 writes essays about it and, and produces sort of ways of thinking and and critiques that constantly sort of blindside and surprise me. And uh, I really, really, really love reading um what he comes up with on 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 that blog wow so, that's three excellent choices there and there'll be links to all those in the show notes as well as the the other things that we've discussed and um, david all that remains for me to do is to, to thank you and i just want to thank you for a couple of things and um, firstly and most obviously for giving up your time to, to speak to us today this has been another two-hour epic and i really appreciate you we're recording this just before christmas so so thank you very much for for sharing <laughs> happy christmas indeed um but secondly um just from a personal perspective and um, whenever i was um kind of first engaging in educational research yours was one of the one of the blogs i, I came across first and whenever i was researching for, for my book uh, like well basically i wouldn't have a book if it wasn't for your blog because yours was always the first place i went to for kind of the practical, easy to digest ways of understanding, interleaving, spacing, growth mindset. And that led me on a journey to then check out all the blogs and the research that you referenced. And it's for, as a maths teacher to, to, to learn so much from, you know, a, a subject that's probably as, as far removed from mine as, as you can get. Uh, it was just, it, it was absolutely brilliant. I'm a massive fan, as I've mentioned on these podcasts before, of your, of, of, of all your books, particularly this recent one, but also the one you wrote with, with Nick Rose who's been on the show as well and i will be linking to all those in the show notes so thank you for your time david and, and thank you for all you do and um, kind of sharing your expertise i know it's helped me and i know it's helped a lot of listeners so thank you very much you're very kind thank you so there you have it there was my interview with David Dido. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. I found David an absolutely fascinating guest. I'll be perfectly honest with you, I was a little bit nervous before this conversation, purely because David is clearly so bright and so well read. And this subject matter, not only does it fascinate me, but it's it's fundamentally important. It's fundamentally important to our job as a teacher, our jobs for those of us who are as, as parents, for anyone who interacts with, with, with children or just who's genuinely interested in, in how intelligence develops um, and what we can do to, to help kids get cleverer. So it was one of those conversations that, that I really wanted to get right and, I, and I'll reflect a little bit more about that and possibly some of the mistakes I made in the interview a little bit later on in the, these takeaways. But first off, just a few kind of practical things that, that I've been pondering since I spoke to David. The first is, and and we come back to this every now and again on the podcast, just how flipping hard it is to move schools. And and not enough people talk about this. People always talk about the fact that it's hard starting off as an NQT or even a student teacher. 
But it's very hard when you're an established teacher and you're feeling comfortable and you've got all your routines and the kids know you and all this kind of stuff. And you move school and every reput all the reputation you built up, everything that came before it, it's just, it just crumbles, crumbles to the ground. Nobody knows who you are. And if like me, you moved into quite a challenging school, it can be really, really difficult. So what can we do to, to help? Well, I was thinking hard about this and this is something I, I've been looking off to observe in, in my own school over the last few years whenever new teachers have joined. What really helps is, it, if, is that if you're a teacher in a school and a new member of staff comes in, maybe comes into the maths department or your English department or whatever it is, I think it can be really helpful to talk to the kids about that teacher. And I know it sounds dead stupid this, but just to drop their name in conversations like um, Mr. Birchby, he's a teacher who joined our school uh, last couple of years, um, Mr. Mr. Birchby's into footy or Mr. Birchby does this or or just to be seen I know it sounds pathetic but just to be seen out and about with that teacher at break or at lunchtime or in the corridor or something like that and what that does I think anyway is it shows the kids that that teacher belongs there that the new teacher is part of the fabric that they've got allies that they're one of the teachers now and once they see that, particularly if, if they're seen with a well-established teacher, then it just helps that integration a bit more, as opposed to what I see sometimes. And, I, and I've, been, I've been the victim of this sometimes. When you go in there and you feel very isolated yourself and you feel a bit isolated from the staff, but you're also then isolated from, from the kids and you feel a bit of a loner, a bit of an outsider, and it can just make that transition even more difficult than, than it inevitably is going to be anyway. So... I guess my thing to take away from this is that, okay, it's hard enough being that new teacher myself and having experienced that, I really know it is. So that if I now see a new teacher join our school or join our department or something like that, or even if they're a student teacher or school's direct or something like that, if I can not only make them feel part of the department, but make that explicit, make that visual so all the so all the students see them as part of the team, then I think it can really help ease that transition. It can make them seem an established member of the team in the student size, which is really important to ease that uh, transition. So that was one of my thoughts. Um, the biggest one that I've taken away from both David's book and our conversation was this on peer groups. Now, whenever you say peer groups have a big influence, I mean, that, that's pretty obvious. But the number of 50% that peer groups can account for 50% of differences in IQ, that surprised me. It was, it was that high. And again, it got me thinking, well, what's the takeaway there? What can individual teachers themselves do about this? Well, I guess the most important thing is that they can create a culture within their own classrooms where learning and success are things to be celebrated. It's, it's a case of trying to create that as the social norm. Because once that social norm is established, that, that, that being successful, asking questions, not being fearful of making mistakes, doing homework, being proud when you achieve things, if that can be the social norm, that's incredibly influential on, on, on students. Because students, just like adults, want to want to be accepted want to, it's quite hard to be to be seen as different you want to kind of follow the group and if the group is following this particular positive path then it can be a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that things just get better and better and better but we've all been in classes where that's not the case and I've certainly taught many many classes where you've got kind of disruptive groups of students 
And now having kind of listened to David and, and read his book and tried to dig a bit deeper into this, I'm thinking that, that, that those kind of groups need to be picked up on quickly and separated to, to try and stop it being a self-fulfilling prophecy the other way, where they kind of feed off each other, these students, where I'm not doing any work, I'm messing around, well, neither am I, or blah, 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 and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So I think kind of not being, not kind of settling on a seating plan if it, if it turns out that there's a couple of groups who it's just not working for and being quite proactive in moving things around um, could be something practical that teachers can do. And also on that same thing, it's quite common practice in a lot of schools that if there's a particularly disruptive child in a class or say two disruptive kids in a class, to move one of those kids into another class. And that can work, it can work, well, both ways really. It can work if the social norm in the class that the child's being moved into is strong enough and positive enough that that child actually then adheres to that social norm. They they start to realize, well, okay, this is the way things are in this class. I best start changing my mind because otherwise I'm going to be a bit of an outcast. But I've also seen it work the other way around where that character is strong enough and popular enough and influential enough that they change the social norm themselves and things start going the wrong way. So it's there's no easy answer to this. But it's really made me appreciate the power and importance and significance of peer groups on children's learning. And it's something that I'm just going to be on the lookout for. And there's no hard and fast rule with how best to deal with it. But I can't just let it settle. I can't let these kind of negative peer groups on the one hand kind of make situations worse for each other. And at the same time, I want to harness the power of the positive peer group relationships to try and create these positive social norms that's gonna be best for everybody. And the third thing I just wanted to talk about briefly was this, this concept of powerful knowledge. And I mentioned this um, in the podcast that I'm gonna try and think how this applies to, to mathematics, my own subject. Now, in his book, David uh, explains that powerful knowledge is, and I'm gonna quote here, that which provides reliable explanations and a sound basis for making judgments about the world beyond the narrow limits of experiences. Now, as David articulated um, in, his in, in the conversation and also in his book, you can kind of see how that's going to be the case for subjects like English and history. There is some knowledge that's, that's going to teach kids about the world around them, beyond the limits of their classroom experience. But what is that in mathematics? And we had a little bit of a disagreement on the kind of why you do things and so on and so forth. I've been thinking long and hard about this. For me, and God Almighty, this is not a definitive answer by any stretch of the imagination. But for me, powerful knowledge in mathematics is, is all about connections. I think maths is bad for students and students have a negative impression of mathematics when it's seen as loads of disconnected chunks. Right, we're learning this this week, we're learning fractions this week, next week we're learning Pythagoras, next week we're learning angles. It's just a load of separate things. For me, powerful knowledge in maths is seeing how all the different areas of maths connect together, how fractions connect to decimals, connect to percentages, where negative numbers come into play, how algebra is connected to everything. So math is no longer seen as isolated topics. Now, a really simple way to do this is just to harness the power of interleaving, or as Will Emney calls it, interweaving. So always look for opportunities to bring these high value topics like fractions, decimals, percentages, negatives, and algebra into all the other topics that we study. So there's kids are always seeing the link, always seeing that the thing that they learned last year or three years ago or five years ago 
it's coming back again because it's all connected. Maths is one wonderfully connected subject together. So that's one way to harness it, interweaving. And that needs careful curriculum planning, carefully, careful scheme of work, ordering to make sure that there's opportunities for this interweaving. And also careful planning to make sure that those opportunities are, are taken advantage of. The topics aren't taught in isolation. That once the basics of a topic are taught, then these other high value topics are woven in there. But also there's ways to make these connections and, and, and harness this powerful knowledge in, in other ways. So I'm going to be reflecting on this in my interview with, with Alex Quigley, which I've already recorded, but I'm going to be releasing a Next But One podcast. And I'm going to be talking there about a new thing I do when I'm introducing a topic, a new way to help students make connections. And I'm going to leave this as a bit of a teaser because I want you to listen to that, that episode because again, it's, it's, it's one of my favorite conversations. But I think by making these connections, by showing students where things fit into the big picture of mathematics instead of isolated uh, topics, that's when the knowledge that we give kids become powerful. But again, just, just my view on that one. And another thing I, I thought about, you can see that I had lots to think about as a result of this conversation, is this struggle and failure. And it, I find it fascinating that David says that there's, there's been a bit of a kind of failure culture developing um, in teaching. That's something that I've certainly felt and I've, I've spoken about it at numerous workshops that, that I've been lucky enough to, to be invited to speak at. Um, you've got to get the culture right. Doug Lemoff calls it a culture of error within the classroom where kids aren't afraid to admit mistakes. But for me, there's a there's a fine line. You don't want kids struggling too much. If if everything's a struggle, if they're permanently asked to be outside of their comfort zone, if they're permanently finding things difficult, then you need some strong character to be willing to keep persisting in that face of constant struggle and constant failure. Um, so for me, that struggle has to come alongside success. I think kids are only willing to struggle, this is just, just my view, only willing to struggle and only willing to kind of put up with failure if firstly they've tasted success in the past and secondly they think that that struggle and failure is going to lead to more success in the future. So they've got to have experienced success and have the viewpoint that they can experience success again in the future. And also just going back to what Doug Lemov spoke uh, talks about with this culture of error, one thing I've started doing now is making sure I actually script some of my interactions. And this sounds a bit ridiculous, but particularly when a child's made a mistake and I wanna actually use that mistake and share it with the rest of the class because I'm pretty sure that if we don't get this tackled now, it could be a problem that just grows and grows and grows. I've gotta be really careful in my interactions, both with that student who's made the mistake and also with the, with the whole class themselves. So with that student, I'm gonna to say to them, do you mind if I just borrow your work and show it to the rest of the class? And if they say to me, have I made a mistake? I'm gonna be honest, I'm gonna say, yeah, you have. And I'm not gonna say, but I'm so pleased you've made a mistake, because that sounds quite patronizing. And that's not true. I'm not pleased that they've got it wrong. That's the wrong message. What I'm pleased about is that they're willing to allow me to use the mistake that they've made to help them out and the rest of the class out. So I'll make sure I script my interactions in that way. Thank you so much, Josh, for allowing me to, to share the mistake that you've made with everybody because I tell you what, 
you've made it in this instance, but I reckon there's at least four or five other people who've done the exact same thing. And if we can get this sorted out now, it's gonna to be to the benefit of everybody. So I'm really careful in the language that I use and it will change with different kids and different classes. But I think a lot of the time gets spent lesson planning, thinking about the resources we use, the questions we ask, the examples, all those things are fundamentally important. But certainly one thing I've not spent enough time thinking about over the years is the language that I use. And that's something that I think is fundamentally important. So something I'm going to be reflecting on and working harder on over the coming weeks, months and years. And finally, finally, we return to cognitive load theory. And it's one of those things, it's been a recurring theme in this podcast. And we've got kind of extreme views on this. You get Greg Ashman, who's a massive cognitive load theory advocate. And listen to my two interviews with Greg if you want to hear more about that. And then also we had Dr. Helen Williams on recently, who's not quite a massive cognitive load theory advocate. And it's fascinating to hear different viewpoints on this. But just to take a slightly different turn on it, I've started thinking about cognitive load theory in other aspects of my life outside of education. So um, I mentioned that I'm currently doing antenatal classes, me and my wife, and I'm experiencing extreme cognitive overload. We're trying to f figure out how to change nappies and, and use bottles and all, all this kind of stuff. And all the things I have to remember about safe sleeping positions for babies and all this kind of stuff. But also I've been thinking about cognitive load theory in terms of my interviewing technique. Um, I, I need to get better at interviewing and I was quite annoyed with myself at a couple of points um, in my interview with David there. Um, for me, the kind of key point of the interview was, 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 was trying to figure out what influences IQ and I, I was fascinated to, to try to get to the bottom of parental influence versus peer group influence. But if you listen back to it, and I was tempted to flip and try and cut this out or edit it to make me sound a bit better, I kind of bundled three or four questions into one. I asked David to reflect on two quotes, then asked him a ridiculously big question about how schools can harness the power of peer groups without first digging into what effect peer groups have, why parents have no uh, effects beyond a certain age and, and all this kind of stuff. So it's all well and good using cognitive load theory when I'm teaching, but I need to start using it a bit more in terms of interviewing and stuff. So I'm, I'm making a pledge here and I'm making this public so you can, you can listen out to see if I actually stick to this. I'm going to try and atomize my questions, atomize the interview. I'm going to try and break my questions down into, into smaller kind of areas so that the person I'm interviewing can focus on that one area before then I build it up to the next and build it up to the next and build it up to the next. Otherwise, it's too much for the guest. It's too much for the listener and so on and so forth. So I'm annoyed about myself for that, but I'm going to turn it into a positive. I'm going to try and learn from it. Anyway, I think that's enough takeaways for now. Flipping X, sorry for banging on so much, but there was there's so much I had to think about. Um, all that remains for me to do is, is offer a few thank yous. So first, thank you to uh, podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. A massive thank you to David Didow. I absolutely love talking to David. His book's wonderful. I strongly advise you check it out. There'll be a link to it in the show notes along with all the other things we discussed about and David's big three as well. And a massive thank you to you, the listener, for keeping on tuning into these podcasts. I'm trying to branch outside of my comfort zone with, with interviewing English teachers and primary school teachers and so on and so forth. I hope you enjoy these kind of episodes where we go a bit different. And then of course, I have to bring it back and have some maths teachers on. And I've got some absolutely fascinating guests lined up over the next few weeks. And um, if you enjoy these podcasts, if you could do me two favors, that'd be amazing. One, leave a quick review or rating on wherever you get your podcasts from. And um, it just helps more people find these shows. And secondly, 
Similarly, if you've got a colleague who doesn't listen to this podcast, I mean, firstly, what are you doing hanging around with them? But secondly, maybe to get them on board, why not suggest one of your favourite episodes? It may be this one with David Didow, it may be Dylan William, it may be Dr. Helen Williams, it may be Daisy Christodoulou, it could be Chris Bolton. Pick a favourite episode and, and recommend that they listen to it. It might just get them on board. Anyway, I'm going to shut up now. Thanks so much for listening. You take care of yourselves and bye. Everybody.